and gentlemen, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. This is the Hagman Report for today. It is Monday, the 21st day of May, 2018. I want to welcome everyone to the Hagman Report. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for your belief and trust in us as we uh, as, as we attempt to hook up uh, my audio here. All right. Um, there we go. Thank you. I'll tell you what. You talk about a weekend that had a lot of news. We had a lot of news this weekend. You've got, obviously, President Donald Trump on the warpath. It's coming. It's coming, folks. It is coming. The blowback, the pushback against the deep state by Donald Trump and all the people associated with him uh, on Team Donald Trump for the uh, against the uh, special counsel, against the uh, the coup that is taking place. If you were watching Donald Trump's tweet, uh, Twitter feed, and tweets, you'll see that uh, he's had it. He's he's pretty much had it now with the addition of. Rudy Giuliani to the legal team, of course. You're you're seeing this uh, expand. I think uh, the 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 aggressive nature of the blowback is expanding, and I think that's that's deliberate. The second part of this um, weekend, of course, we're seeing Infowars. If you watch Infowars during the weekend, you saw uh, Alex Jones talking about eight people associated with Roger Stone being interviewed, being stopped, being questioned, and it's all about alternative media. It's all about who is communicating with who. And this is the largest fishing expedition. That's perfect, by the way, Eric. Thank you. It's perfect in my ear. Um, This is the largest fishing expedition that this country has seen. And I think that uh, at the epicenter of this, and this was my uh, my program this morning, was about John Brennan. You're seeing John Brennan really at the at the epicenter of this this coup. This is, remember Seven Days in May, that movie? And Seven Days in May was about a military coup back in the 60s, if you remember that. Now we're seeing an intelligence coup, and of course, Playing the lead role in this is John Brennan, I believe. This is my personal opinion. In fact, I um, had said some things. Uh, Brennan quoted Cicero on his Twitter feed this weekend, and I quoted him Cicero right back, and that's the infamous quote about traitors within. And not coincidentally, we will have at the bottom of this hour, Dinah West come on. Dinah West is the author of among other books, one of my most favorite reads, American Betrayal. And if you haven't read this book, I would urge everyone to read it. This is one of the most, uh, uh, it's indescribable, really, in terms of the information that she's provided. She picks up where M. Stanton Evans left off. Now, at the time that she wrote this book, it's interesting because you know when pigs get stuck they squeal. Well, they be squealing. So she wrote another book because conservatives, conservatives saying, oh, this is just, you know, it's hokum, it's BS. And 
Dinah West wrote a rebuttal to their rebuttal called the rebuttal interestingly enough taking the task of those people who said it's not true or it's you know the information is, is hyperbole and what we're the reason I mentioned this we are seeing today right now the 19 or the 21st century version of the 1950s at play the communist Muslim infiltration at play or at work in the form of Brennan Comey but at the at the tip at the top at, uh, uh, Obama and then you've got uh, Clinton of course Bill and Hillary both and then Comey and Brennan and such so we're going we're gonna to tie all of this together that's at the, the bottom of this hour and then closing out the show, top of the uh, top of the nine o'clock hour, will be Peter Barry Chowka coming in. Of course, as usual, he's got a new uh, column up at HagmanReport.com, and he's been busy writing uh, uh, all weekend, actually. Hagman Report and American Thinker. So there we have it laid out for you, and it's it's really going to be an interesting program. A lot of good information or a lot of good uh, response from the program Friday, folks. Uh, if you didn't catch Friday's program with, with, uh, well, Keith Hansen starting the program out, of course, man, Keith Hansen on fire about issues about the Second Amendment, and of course, Patrick Wood coming in, but really, the, uh, Teshua Tea Company, the, the, the operation that's going on in, in a communist country. Yeah, the, by uh, Brad Hop. The, Entrepreneur Brad Hopp and the Teshua right. Tea Company, uh, part one of a partnership that is helping uh, in child sex slaves in a communist Asian country, and they've already done several uh, retractions of these of these girls. And what they're doing is they're not just stopping with the with the rescuings. They have set up uh, a number of uh, what you call services, uh, re- rehabilitation, mentally, physically, emotionally, as well as schooling. And other things. And all the, the videos up on YouTube on Hagman Report are segmented. So if you want to check out the Keith Hansen piece, if you want to check out the Patrick Wood piece or the Hour Two piece, they're all up there individually as well as with the whole show. But just a, a very tough and heartbreaking show to do last week, um, at least in that second hour. Okay. Uh, we are getting notices. I'm getting notice of, of some audio issues. Just hang in there, folks. We're working out some audio issues on our end. So just, uh, Thank you for letting us know. The, the I got one note that the audio is war, warbly, sound warbly? cutting in, warbly, and then sound cutting in and out. Okay. Um, so we're working on that on our side. So thank you very much for that. Uh, those notifications. Um, so we got news. Yeah, uh, I I just want to come out with with Alex Jones because here is the situation. Just so you know, it is not just about Infowars. It is not just about Roger Stone. They are, in some ways, the low-hanging fruit. They're coming after all of us. They're coming after us. They've already come after us. It's been nearly 30 months in the legal arena that we are, um, we, we are facing our, our own legal battles, okay, where the defamation cases are, are out in the open, uh, or are being levied against us. And when you start peeling the layers back, 
and start looking at what's really behind this, you'll see that this is, a, in my view, this is a concerted effort to shut us down and to bankrupt us. That's number one. Number two would be the um, censorship part of things. The censorship part, of course, people are going after our sponsors, they're going after our guests, potential and otherwise, explaining to them that we are toxic. Now, most people, 98.5% of the guests and the sponsors and the people who stand with us, they, they understand what's going on. But there's that percent and a half, roughly, or maybe 2%, that there, there's an effect. Well, we can't go on Hagman's show because we won't get invited on Fox ever again. Or we can't go on the Hagman Report because we won't be invited on X, Y, or Z. That's what's taking place in addition to the outright overt censorship, whether it's on, on uh, social networking or through uh, the burying of the search results. So this is a war, and it's only going to get worse. That's why I brought up InfoWars, because it, it it is only going to get worse. And if you, you think, well, I don't like them, so I don't care, let them die on the vine, that's the wrong way to feel. And, and I would feel the same way about a leftist site in terms of political ideology. They've got a right to speak. Let the people decide, not government, not not Silicon Valley, but let the people decide. Now, I'm not talking about terrorism. I'm talking about the ideology, the ideological differences, because at the end of the day, freedom, capitalism, pro-Second Amendment, pro-liberty, pro-Constitution will win out. That's my opening statement and that's but this is where we're at we're at a very dangerous period in, in american history right now and if you can't feel it or if you don't understand it you're going to get caught up in it you're going to get lost and you're going to get hurt so we need to stick together in this and we need to understand who is behind this and, oh and by the way and, and you're going to see this come out you're going to see the attempt to discredit and disparage people by bringing out things from 10, 20, 30 years ago, and, and these lame, lame-ass attempts to discredit with headlines, but when you look in the details, oh wait, that's not the way it, that's not the way it is. You're gonna see that come out. And, and that's fine. Because it identifies what side they're on. They're not on the side of truth. They're not on the side of justice. They're not on the side of anything. They're on the side on, on, they are adhering to the politics of personal destruction to shut down outlets like this and others by any means necessary. Greg Hunter called them cucks for guys. You may not like that word. I don't like that word. I know you don't like that word. I don't really like it either, but it's an apt description. Mm-hmm. Okay, for, in terms of, of, of the... But let me just say this. What you see out there is not what it appears to be. i just leave it at that. Because, oh, you well, this is just, you know... The, oh, thank you so much for bringing the truth out. Well, no, it's not that. There's, there, there is a, a nefarious agenda behind things that you're seeing today that go far, far, far beyond what is visible. 
And now that concludes my opening statement. Well, let's uh, let's do this. Let's start here. Washington Post and New York Times, uh, and, and we're going to talk about this. The spy who was spying on President Trump during his campaign, it has come to light that, uh, you know, he was there uh, 100 days before the election, and he was spying for the Obama administration into the Trump campaign. And this article from the Daily Wire shows the just insanity of what the liberal media is trying to do and covering it up. Washington Post and New York Times, FBI informant in Trump campaign embedded to protect him. Ever wonder what color the sky is in mainstream media's world? Us too. Last week's stories about the Obama FBI embedding an informant inside the campaign of Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. Trump called the reports bigger than Watergate, an all-time biggest political scandal. But not to the Washington Post or the New York Times. Over the weekend, both stellar news agencies wrote stories saying the insertion of an informant was simply to protect Trump. The FBI didn't use an informant to go after Trump. They used one to protect him, read the Post headline. Trump and his backers are wrong about what it means that the FBI reportedly was using confidential source to gather information early in its investigation, possible campaign ties to Russia. The investigation started out as a counterintelligence probe, not a criminal one and relying on a covert source rather than more intrusive method of gathering Okay, so, so let's talk about that. Suggests the FBI may have been acting let's, cautiously okay. to protect him, not undermine him. So first of all, what they're saying is, is cannot be true. <laughs> we it, got it, caught. It, it, it's, yeah, yeah. And the fact that this investigation was a counterintelligence launch under the counterintelligence banner as opposed to a criminal banner was because there was no criminal predicate to launch a... a um, uh, criminal investigation. So they did this under the under the veil of counterintelligence, which is less um, demanding in terms of opening an investigation, but more demanding in terms of evidentiary uh, uh, product, the evidentiary work product, which they weren't concerned about. It's kind of like saying, um, well, we believe that Hagman report they're engaged in in terrorist act type of activities or colluding with the Russians. We believe that. The standard of belief opening an investigation is much less in a counterintelligence than it is in a criminal investigation, which is why they chose the counterintelligence department, plus the players within the counterintelligence department were Trump haters to begin with, and haters of the Second Amendment and First Amendment and freedom and Constitution and pro-life. So you already had a built-in, the built-in players, plus, Joe, the other part of this is, and people need to know this, the IG was not covering, thanks to Sally Yates, was not covering the counterintelligence aspect, the counterintelligence department. So you had no IG oversight, no no investigative oversight. And Brennan deliberately withheld information from Congress, uh, and this is something that Diana West will get into. And, oh, by the way, Brennan, and I know you're talking about Stefan Helper, which, yeah. which I had mentioned earlier, right, uh, look, I talked about how yeah, for a week and a half, two weeks ago. For a while. But uh, th- th- there's a question here, and let me ask this. Um, this is back, my goodness, this is a, a, quite a while ago. This is back in February. There's a question that was that appeared on freedomoutpost.com. Does the CIA director have Barack Obama's records that could prove he's el- ineligible to be president? This uh, Maybe this came out quite a few, some time before that, but... The question is raised, you know, you, you, when you go back to 2008, remember that, that passport break-in? Mm-hmm. Okay, what happened with the passport records of Barack Hussein Obama? They were altered. Uh, perhaps. Possibly. 
Perhaps. And, and John Brennan, of course, the, the head of the Analysis Corporation, in tandem with the Stanley, uh, Stanley Inc., to, um, operation, to operations that, that were based out of, um, Virginia. Interestingly enough, access the passports of, of Obama, Clinton, and McCain at the time. And you're, you're right. I mean, could, could they have been altered? And of course, remember at that time, that break-in, what happened as a result of that break-in? Obama, while on the campaign trail, admitted that he traveled to Pakistan back in 1981. Had that break-in not occurred, he may never have admitted his Pakistani travels back in 1981. Just saying that this is something to take a look at. What's Brennan's role in this is a lot bigger. Go ahead. We're going to talk about this because many people are asking, is John Brennan scared that he is about to, uh, you know, be exposed and possibly face criminal charges? Panic time. John Brennan demands GOP leadership stop Trump before his administration looks into this. Uh, just to give you the, the rough around the edges part here, President Trump tweeted out demanding that he wants tomorrow the Department of Justice to look into whether the FBI and or DOJ infiltrated or surveilled the Trump campaign for political purposes and if any such demands or requests were made by people inside the Obama administration. Former CIA director and high-profile anti-Trump resistance activist John Brennan called on Republican congressional leadership to stop Trump from looking into any of that. This is what John Brennan said. Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan, if Trump continues along this disastrous path, you will bear major responsibility for the harm done to our democracy. You do a great disservice to our nation and the Republican Party if you continue to enable Mr. Trump's self-serving actions. What a bunch of uh, crud that is. Do you is. believe this? Uh, yeah. Trump's disastrous path? His disastrous <clears throat> path to what? Find the truth and uncover the criminal conspiracy that contains John Brennan and others' criminal actions? Just because you don't like it, John Brennan? Just because you're going to be the one that's exposed? You're going to jump out and, and say that this is a, uh, the Republican Party is doing a disservice and Trump is on a disastrous path? And it's not doing any harm to our democracy. Yeah, it's a, by the way, John, hey John, it's a republic, yeah. okay? And if I was the Attorney General, I'd pick up the phone and say, hey John, John, I got, I got two words for you. No, not those two words, Eric, knock it off. Well, Tom Fitton. I, I'd say, lawyer up. Yeah, Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch says the same thing. Mr. Brennan is among those senior Obama administration officials who may have civil and criminal liability for the illicit targeting of Donald Trump. Another one, Sarah Carter. Why are you so concerned? What are you afraid of? Other people are asking, are you scared? What would make you say such a thing? But remember the article on Twitchy Ends. There is no deep state. I roll. That's, That's right. A quote from yeah, John no, no deep state. And isn't it funny how we've come so far now? Yeah. Now, remember deep state conspiracy theory. Even today, look at the visceral response by the leftists, by, by the by the progressives. Well, you're mentioning deep state. You must be one of them. You're a conspiracy theorist. And even Sebastian Gorka. Now, I like Sebastian Gorka, but I got to tell you, okay, I prefer pure permanent state over deep state. I don't care what you call it. They're the same thing. They're the people that with the power behind the, behind the curtain. I prefer deep state. I, I prefer shadow government. I prefer what Kevin Shout, Kevin Ship describes it, a former CIA officer who understands the workings of this. 
I, I don't need some political pundit yipping in my ear saying that there is no deep state, or I prefer a permanent state. Look, I, with all due respect, Mr. Gorka, Dr. Gorka, I appreciate that. But it, it, the, the time right now, we've, it, it's over. We must, with plain English language, we must say the words, understand what they mean, use the proper words, and understand that we are under attack. And and it is the permanent state. It is the deep state. It is the shadow government. The shadow government, of course, the umbrella for the deep state, otherwise known as the permanent state, the SES, whatever you want to call it. But the bottom line is the people with the power behind the scenes who are running things. That's what that's what we were warned about from uh, Dwight Eisenhower in terms of the military-industrial complex. It should be the military-industrial intelligence political complex, in my view, widen that out. And Brennan's not the only one uh, uh, saying these things. James Clapper also came out, the former director of national intelligence, came out and said the FBI was protecting the Trump campaign, not spying. Clapper criticized the president's order to investigate the use of an informant in his campaign, saying Trump was using the Department of Justice as his private investigatory body. Isn't that what you guys did? Isn't that what no, it's the Obama administration yeah. did? Isn't that what Clapper and Brennan and all these people from the unmasking to the spying to the political opponent using that as in the dossier? All of this was using it for their own private conspiracy against President Trump. And the only reason that we're seeing all this out in the open now is because Hillary Clinton lost. And it's only going to get sh- worse it from should, here. I'll tell you what, it should give everyone the sh- shudders to think how Obama used the intelligence agencies plural and brennan reached out across o- o- over the over the ocean used uh, the british the french australian intelligence services i mean the five eyes used them to cultivate information because the ca you know it, at least ostensibly to 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 maintain some semblance of of concurrence with the mandate here uh used foreign intelligence services Across across the sea, recultivated that 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 uh, reconstituted that intelligence, brought it back to the United States, and used that as the basis for spying against Donald Trump. But when you're talking about having human intelligence assets in the Donald Trump campaign, when you're talking about wiretapping, which has clearly been he's been it's been verified, you are talking about a banana republic. You're talking about a dictatorship. And I'll tell you, the projection here by the left, by Brennan, by others, saying, well, Donald Trump is using... No, no, no. You're exactly right, Joe. This is projection by the, by the political left, by the, by the Marxist, Stalinist, apologist. And, and when Diana West comes on, she's going to talk, I think she's going to mention about, uh, about, uh, Nellie Orr and the her position. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Mark's, uh, let me see here. Or's wife, the memo in the CIA. Folks, go to dianawest.net. I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing her when she comes on at the bottom of the yeah, hour. She's going to talk about them. Okay. Because this is, you, you need to really read what she's writing. Her writings and her book, again, American material has never been more prescient than it is today. Uh, even though it's just a year or two old. I mean, it's, it's, it, it but in talking about what happened back in the fifties, but bringing it to today, uh, this book resonated with me beyond any other book that I've I've read in recent memory. 
um, it, it capstones M. Stanton Evans' long tome about uh, the infiltration, the communist infiltration back in the 50s. But it brings it to the present day. So, And she wrote a piece, Orr's Wife, The yeah. Memo, and the CIA. It's right here. Yeah, it's right here. And, and i got to tell you, uh, Nellie Orr, you want to talk about modern-day infiltration. We're going to be talking about this coming up. So you're right. Just in the last closing minutes here, I want to continue a piece from last week that talked about uh, the president was misquoted as saying he uh, is calling all illegal immigrants animals. What the press did was deceptively edit a clip of the president talking about MS-13 when asked a question from one of the governors, and they ran with it. All the news outlets ran with it as though the president called illegal animals or illegal immigrants he animals. should have never done that I, I i disagree with president trump on that anatomy of a smear how the media created a malicious lie about trump's animal comment that piece is up on pj media but there's a, a better piece that is up on hagman report under the in other news section cbs cnn panels totally fine to take trump's animal comment out of context as been previously stated, the liberal media made total fools of themselves last Wednesday night when they rushed to claim the president had slammed all immigrants as animals. When the video came out in full context, all of them issued corrections. Yet, despite the media's own reactions, panelists on CBS's Face the Nation and CNN reliable sources thought it was fair to do that to the president given his past comments well, about okay, immigrants. But let's just say, let's just say, let's stipulate for a moment. That he called only MS-13 animals. Mm-hmm. I, Joe, I think the president should apologize for that remark. If he only called, now think about this, if he only called MS-13 members, gang members, animals, I think he should, I think he owes an apology. To who? To the animals. They're monsters. There you go. The, the, MS-13 members are not animals. Animals act out of a, a right. natural right. sense. They're monsters. They don't They're murder. demons. They don't, yeah. Good point. Uh, no. So Donald Trump, if, if he owes an apology to anyone, it's to the animal kingdom. Well, Brian Stelter and others uh, said, I, I fundamentally think the coverage was fair, regardless of if he was misquoted or not, basically because you know he says offensive things all the time, and whether this was taken out of contents or not, it doesn't matter, uh, you know. If he didn't say this about illegal immigrants on camera, he probably said it off camera. So the coverage is fair, according to reliable source Brian Stelter. Reliable source Brian Stelter. Four words that don't belong together. <laughs> That's exactly right. At least right. not in that order. That's in exactly my view, right. in my personal opinion. Peter Chalk is going to be with us in the third hour. Check out his latest piece up on Hagman Report, talking about the prayer rugs in Fox News DC headquarters. That's an interesting piece. He'll be with us in Hour 3. But coming up next, author of American Betrayal, Diana West, will be with us. Back to this Monday edition of the Hagman Report. Today is May 21st, 2018. We are only one month away from the Red Pill Expo coming up June 21st through the 23rd in Spokane, Washington. Go to HagmanReport.com. On the very top of the page, there is a big banner, beautiful banner that Eric, Tech Eric created for the Red Pill Expo. There you can click on that. It'll take you right to the page where you can use promo code Hagman to receive 15% off the price of admission. And also, don't forget, if you order before the end of the month, 
As Patrick Wood said on Friday, there are the DVD sets available from 2017, over 10 discs, 14 speakers, uh, just over a $100 value in and of itself. Redpillexpo.org, but go to the, the banner on HagmanReport.com and use that promo code Hagman for 15% off. One month from today, you will see this great conference start, and Patrick Wood was on with us Friday, and he talked about the uh, rise of technocracy with the Google AI systems that want to be used for social engineering. Well, they already are, but even more so. And he is just one of many expert speakers that are going to be talking about a whole host of issues. You're not going to want to miss this if you can go. Spokane, Washington, June 21st through the 23rd, 23rd we 15% talk, right? off promo code Hagman, Red Pill Expo. But go to Hagman Report and use the banner to get there. Yeah, HagmanReport.com. In fact, in fact, bookmark that website. And, and folks, uh, bookmark DianaWest.net. DianaWest.net. It's in the program description. Bookmark that website, but even more than that, uh, go to uh, go to Amazon, wherever you need to go, and grab yourself a copy of American Betrayal. And, and if you really want the entire truth, all of her books, all of Diana West's books, because they are all uh, incredibly well-written. As a matter of fact, this weekend, for therapy, okay, I, I, well, you saw me Friday night. I was pretty, pretty, I was a crispy critter. So Friday, or starting this weekend, I, I, I took the lady, the studio dog, for many walks this weekend. And I, I was for in a special event. My wife got me the audible version of American Betrayal. So, I called my daughter up. She came over. She had she had to show me how to put it on a device I could use to, you know, to put it in my ear so I could walk the dog and listen to the. So anyway, long story short is I I I actually got through the first part. That's how long, how many walks I took. My my dog loved it. Lady loved it. She was she said, "Man, let's do this more often." But the audible version of American Betrayal as well. You'll you'll love it. It's it's an unbelievable. Um, it, it, it's, it really kind of personalizes the words in American Betrayal. So, uh, American Betrayal by Diana West. And also, this book caused such a storm. The, um, uh, this book uh, caused uh, such a storm that, uh, by conservatives, the blowback by conservatives was incredible. So, what Diana West did was she wrote uh, the rebuttal defending American Betrayal from the book burners. And I read this book as well, and it's kind of hard for me to believe in this day, in this age, in this time period. You've got people who self-identify as conservatives who have, who say, well, wait a minute. McCarthy, for example, he was incorrect. Or even conservatives who use McCarthy, McCarthyism as a pejorative, uh, when in fact McCarthy was absolutely correct. Some might take issue with his delivery, but nonetheless he was correct. The findings from that era and how they apply today are in this book. And, and it's funny because chapter three is a life changing, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say life changing. It, it changes your worldview. Chapter three changes your worldview on, um, how you, um, how you look at things today. But what we're seeing, the headlines, Russian influence, John Brennan, the, just look at the headlines of this weekend. 
Look at the headlines of last week. Look at the infiltration. That's what that's what we're going to be talking about when when we get her on. So we're working to get her on right now. And uh, with that, I'll just say you know just hang in there. By the way, on my Twitter account, I did just so you know, I'm not I'm not fooling around. I did put in the uh, my Twitter account a picture on my desk of my notebook and uh, the two books that uh, that I used this weekend as study guides. So it's all good. So Joe, while we're working to get her on. Back to Brennan. You know, folks, Brennan, Brennan, j- just, just so people understand, Brennan did vote for a communist, Gus Hall, back in 1976. He was appointed, uh, to head, yeah, Gus Hall. He was the communist, he was the communist, uh, CPUSA, uh, front, or ticket holder on the ballot for President Gus Hall back in 1976. Brennan, voted for a communist for president back in 1976. In 2011, he called for the FBI to eliminate its offensive curriculum and training materials, which which made reference to jihad and radical Islam. And he was involved in crafting the false talking points back uh, over, over Benghazi. He was appointed CIA director by Obama back in 2013, and of course, left with uh, upon Donald Trump's uh, uh, election. Otherwise, he was a, basically a shoe-in for Hillary's CIA director. Knowing what we know now about John Brennan, I suspect that, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, it makes sense. Diana West wrote in her, at dianawest.net wrote another look at Brennan's red thread. She writes that as the fragments come together in this fantastic mosaic, just give me a thumbs up when she's on. Uh, indicating that the seniors of the intelligence community led or organized by CIA Director John Brennan set out to create the appearance of, of the so-called Russian collusion around what amount to political bystanders in order to catalyze the conspiracy against uh, candidate then President Donald Trump, she writes, I'm putting mine in the investigatory motions, I imagine having set the groundwork for Stalin's purges. That got my attention, because what do we see today? the very same thing. George Newmare, I spoke about him on my morning show this morning, wrote about, um, in the American Spectator, wrote about the work of David Korn and Michael Isikoff, where they inadvertently provided a picture of Brennan running an anti-Trump spying operation right out of Langley. So I would urge people to check out Diana West's article, another look at Brennan's red thread, which links to the American Spectator, uh, in the American Spectator, this was, I'm not sure when this was published, but, uh, uh, John Brennan's exceptionally sensitive issue and writes the American Spectator under Brennan, the CIA operated as an opposition research outfit for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And of course, we know the rest of the story. All right. We do have Diana West with us. Oh, I'm so pleased. And, and I, and I introduced her at the beginning of the segment or earlier in the last segment. So I'm not going to do it again. Except to say that she's one of my favorite writers and, uh, uh, of all time. And I think that her book, American Betrayal, is perhaps one of the most important reads anyone can, can read today. Important books anyone can read today. And it's also available on Audible, as I mentioned. Spent a long time walking my dog this weekend because I needed it. Listened to this book on, uh, narrated by the author. So it's, it's pretty cool. Diana, Diana West, thank you so much for joining us again tonight. Oh, thank you so much. That's a lovely introduction. 
Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I was just getting started. But anyway, no, I, <laughs> you know, the last time you were on, I, we had so many positive emails about your appearance and about your book and just about how you've opened people's eyes to the, back to the post or to World War II and post World War II to today. Man, it's, with the news this past week, it's all, I mean, you're dead, dead right, dead, dead on with all of your observations, I believe. Well, thank you. Well, it's it's a it's a continuing process to to relearn this history. It does all connect, and I, I I think that the continuity is something that has been taken from us after all these generations of everything that's gone wrong with our education system, which is not an accident. I mean, all of these um, ideological assaults have a purpose. They they have a plan. They have participants. And the uh, Marxification, if you will, of our culture generally does include the education component, the government component, the entertainment component, the religious component. I mean, you go right down the cultural long march through the institutions, and you get to a place like 2018. And here we are with the very strange catalyst of Donald Trump, who in addition to everything else and turning out the Clinton machine, has given us this kind of pause whereby we have a chance to save ourselves. I mean, I think it's, I think it's nothing short of that, but it does require paying attention and crash courses in communist subversion. Interesting take, and I, and I totally agree with you. We saw kind of segueing into this we, we saw the uh, uh marxist 200 birthday celebration yes and, and you wrote about this by the way dinawest.net is diana's website um i was amazed at the just at the celebratory nature uh, of marxism and i'm still amazed to this day about how marx is being um I, what do you call? It? I mean, deified almost by, by the by the progressive left. I mean, this is this is something I never thought I'd live to see. And I and I'm a, I'm an old guy, but uh, wow. Right. Well, it's it's deified, but it's also normalized. There it Normal, is. It's it's. But that's one of my favorite verbs because so much of what has happened to us requires the introduction of foreign, hostile, aggressive elements into our culture, into our governing system. Etc. And in order to make that happen, they have to be normalized. And whether we go back to what I consider really a, a 20th century point of fall, um, the the recognition by Franklin Roosevelt of the the Communist Party Bolshevik regime in Moscow that was dedicated to our destruction, he normalized diplomatic relations. Well, that normalized communism. That normalized the Bolsheviks. It set in train all of these events that we are dealing with right up to this very minute. And Marx's 200th birthday, I call it, we're entering Marx's third century. There was um, general bemusement over this, quote, celebration. Um, and it was a celebration. And one of the strangest moments, I think, was when the president, unelected, unaccountable, president of the European Union Commission, a man from uh, Luxembourg named Jean-Claude Juncker went to Marx's birthplace in Germany, a town called Trier, 
went to a very ancient church where I could not observe any crosses evident in the news footage of his speech and praised Marx and told us that we should separate Marxism from the crimes of Marxism. And that's a staggering statement. Of course, it's been done for for generations. But again, just to kind of give yourself a reality check, imagine if someone went to the birthplace of Hitler and gave a speech praising Nazism and told the people listening, which would be a world audience in this case, as with Marx, you have to separate Nazism from the crimes of Nazism. We don't do that, rightly so. However, with Marxism and communism, socialism, we do. And now we're seeing with our, with our own learning curve so terribly low um, at this point, we are seeing it to a point where the first time in my memory, we're seeing candidates in primaries, in 2018 primaries, we just saw some in Pennsylvania recently, elsewhere, not just running as, as, as socialists, but winning. We saw some primary winners in Pennsylvania who won as socialists. We're seeing Demo- they're running on the Democratic ticket, but they are identifying as socialist or socialistic or socialist inspired. They're socialists. They um, are coming right out with it. And if you just go back to when Barack Obama told America in 2008 he wanted essentially to socialize one-sixth of our economy with Obamacare, what became Obamacare, essentially a step to socialized medicine, that word was considered taboo. And I know that because at the time I was a weekly commentator on the Dobbs show, the old show on CNN. And the word socialist was effectively verboten. We didn't have an instruction. I, I don't mean to say that. But it was very difficult to introduce it into the conversation. And when I finally did myself, I'll never forget it, I was accused of red baiting. So this is, this is not by Dobbs, by, by one of the guests, a Hillary Clinton supporter. Right. Um, this is where we are. So we've, we've moved forward to a point where open socialists, of course, after Bernie Sanders, are now running as socialists. Yeah, That's Hillary there. Clinton uh, recently gave an interview where she was asked if she thought her uh, having to say that she was capitalist hurt her campaign. And she said, you know, when you're uh, there in, in Iowa at the primary and you're asked if you're a capitalist or not, and 40-plus percent of the Democratic base considers themselves socialist, yes, I do believe it hurt my campaign. And apparently, Diana, this is where the... Left only. This is the only place the left has to go. They've alienated and isolated themselves so far against American citizens, against the working class, that all they have left is to go to even the more extreme uh, left, which is socialism and communism. And do you think that's going to be? I mean, aside from the anti-Trump campaigns, is that going to be the, uh, the the campaign models for some of these 2018 midterm elections? Well, it seems like they're test running it. Um, they've gotten positive press. I think a large problem is going back to this idea of ignorance. People do not know how to connect socialism to the gulag, to the deaths of at least 100 million people, the killings of 100 million people in the 20th century. If we go to uh, one of the texts, the Black Book of Communism, which came out in the uh, 90s, um, this is where they're going, and they're bolder than they've been, and so we'll see. We'll see where it goes. We saw Bernie Sanders recently talk about federal jobs for all, 
as a plan. This harkens right back to Franklin Roosevelt's vice president, Henry Wallace, who ran as a, quote, progressive with a completely Marxist communist machine in 1948, and he lost to Harry Truman, of course. But he actually wrote a book that sounded very much like um, Bernie Sanders' new plan. And I will also notice that the vice chairman, and this, this has gotten very little attention, the vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Representative Keith Ellison, Democrat from Minnesota, Muslim, actually was giving an interview to a kindred soul at The Progressive, a magazine, a left-wing magazine called The Progressive, and introduced the idea of a maximum wage. In other words, a wage over which one could not or would not be able to earn. And the reporter actually thought he was joking. And she said, oh, that must be some kind of joke. I have this in the the Mark story at my um, website in case people would like to actually read it. They have a link to it. Um, he said, I'm not joking. <laughs> this, There's our ways to, through taxation and other punitive measures, there will be ways or there could be ways or there will be ways if I have my way to make a maximum wage, I guess, to match with a minimum wage. So we are looking at full-on government takeover of the markets, which you know, it sounds shocking to us. However, we have been conditioned toward this going back over the past century. I mean, that's what the New Deal was. It was a socialistic program that put the really took the center of financial power in America from New York to Washington, and it's never gone back. So this this is where we are, and we'll see. I mean, I hope they're all trounced, and of course that would send them back to the drawing board, but they must be feeling pretty confident or at least ready to put it out there because you will see in polling young people are pretty pro-socialist and correct me if I'm wrong but but the the reason for that is because our education system has been so uh, perversely uh, changed radically changed we don't uh, I mean this is not taught your book is not taught in, in, in American history class we don't have history anymore, I guess, social studies. But Yeah, you ask any person who lived under a, a socialist, communist rule if they would prefer America the way it is or if they would prefer a socialist or communist America, you're not going to get one person to agree to that. But because of the indoctrination in the schools, the students are being taught by these you know, insane communist and, and socialist professors that this is the way to go. And uh, like a sponge, they absorb it and don't understand actually what it is that they are uh, you know, hitching their wagon to. And this has created the culture that we see. And this is straight from the uh, communist infiltration, you know, the, the planks of communism, how to infiltrate a society. Exactly. And it goes back very, very far. I think that one fallacy, um, and I certainly shared it in, in terms of uh, before I did all the research I've done um, over over a decade, really, um, we have this feeling that everything was okay until the 1960s. Everybody knows, even people who are young know that something, there were rebel, cultural revolutions in America in the 1960s that we believe changed everything. That in other words, that before the 1960s, everything was pretty much normal constitutional republic as it had been going back 150 years. And that is actually not true at all. And I think that again, getting back to what happens in America betrayal, there is this need, and certainly I found it a need and, and presented it in terms of my own d- period of revelation, um, there is a need to go back, unpeel these layers, and find out when these things started to happen. And what you will find is we can go back a century 
And we can start seeing, in particularly in New York, which was a center, of course, of immigration, um, traditionally, the big harbor and so on, the entry point, we see the school system, the public school system, the city colleges, the high schools, public schools, essentially seized by, by many, many, many communist teachers who were out to indoctrinate by about 1940, when the state actually took its first, one of its first looks, a systematic investigation of what was going on. And they found in tremendous numbers of out-and-out communists in the teachers' union, in the, in the school faculties, what they were doing was also being complemented by what was going on with the foundations, the tax-exempt foundations. We talk about them now as being so far left. They were far left in the 1930s, and indeed, uh, the, the historical papers that were written about how to teach um, someone mentioned social studies a moment ago. Literally changing history to social studies was a thing. And this was actually seen as a way to socialize the beliefs of the student body. And it was very, it was very open in terms of the scholars who were so involved and so funded. And again, we go back to the 1950s and we see these really tremendous investigations by Representative Carol Reese into the foundations that put all this on the record. Again, we wouldn't know, it would be very hard to find out any of this information if those tremendous great investigators from both parties, the Senate and Congress on Capitol Hill from about the end of World War II forward through to the uh, essential political assassination of Joe McCarthy and a little bit after that, they were able to really expose the swamp and get it on the record. And this, I think, again, is where America can learn where we went wrong and learn how it was done and try to learn how to go forward with these tools. And I guess it's kind of become an obsession with me because when I finished American Betrayal, which focuses on what happened when the communist agents, agents of influence, Soviet agents... Um, fellow travelers, as they used to call them, and of course dupes, you know, well-meaning people who were manipulated, um, focused on the government. What happened to our government in terms of policymaking and later during World War II, war-making. And I saw the hijacking of our policymaking, our, our administration, and indeed the Allied war machine. Um, but there's so much more. And this is where I sort of am now, is going through a lot of these hearings and learning about all new kinds of American heroes that are lost to us. But again, it's all not negative. There are great American models, models of strength and, and, and loyalty and patriotism that we have in our past that we need to rediscover. And so that, I guess, is kind of where my mind is, because I think it all connects. Yeah, it, it does. Very well said. We're about two minutes, by the way, two minutes away from the top of the hour network break. You're listening to the Hagman Report, Global Star Satellite Radio, Global Star Radio Network, also YouTube Live and BTR. So I want to thank everyone for watching and listening. Our guest is Diana West, dianawest.net. Her book that we're discussing right now, American Betrayal. American Betrayal, one of the finest books out there, I believe, one of the most important reads right now. Death of the grown, death of a grown, the grown up as well. And of course, the companion book to American Betrayal is the rebuttal. So folks, if you haven't done so already, grab a hold of a copy, buy a copy of American Betrayal. You can also follow up with the rebuttal. Definitely death of a grown up. Uh, and if I was, I was saying, uh, before you came on, Diana, that, uh, um, 
even though I read your I've read your book now two maybe three times and gone back different sections to listen to your narration of the book which you just talked about about the 1950s it really struck me your your narration on on the audible book uh, struck me so I had to go back and read what you wrote um, about the 50s and about my perception of that era uh, in, in the 60s and, and how that all went but it was, it was just incredible um, we've got about a minute here before the top of the hour break anything that, uh, that anything you want to you want to punch punch in on here in, no, in this I, minute I thank you for the care you're taking with this material because I feel exactly the same way I go back to it myself. We have to relearn so much, and it, it, it is, it takes, it takes time, and it becomes, um, quite fascinating once you unlock the doors. It does, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's, um, and what we're seeing today, the, 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 the headline rich environment that we saw last week and over the weekend, Donald Trump coming out, Brennan, uh, my goodness, Brennan, we could spend a, a year on Brennan. Uh, and of course, your findings with respect to Department of Justice, Nellie Orr, Bruce Orr, we're going to be talking about that. As well as, uh, uh breaking news on, about uh, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, too. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. I'm looking at an article right now that I'm going to need some, some clarification on because oh, I don't, uh, I'm going to tell you, it's, really it's good stuff. Folks, our guest is Diana West. DianaWest.net. That's DianaWest.net. Just click on the program description. Also, uh, my Twitter feed and also on Hagman Report Twitter feed, uh, uh proof that, hey, we're studying her material, and it's good stuff. You're listening to the Hagman Report on this, the 21st day of May, 2018. So lucky to have Diana West for the remainder of this hour. Stay with us. Give us three minutes to the other side. It's the 21st day of May, 2018. Spring has sprung. I got to tell you, it's a little warmer where we're at. I was talking to my good friend Pat Campbell uh, last week. It was 87 in Tulsa, as he does his morning show there. Uh, great, great show, by the way. If you're out in Tulsa, KFAQ, Pat Campbell, we want to say hello to Pat. Um, but but uh, with us, so gracious, tremendous author Diana West. Her website. DianaWest.net. You can follow her on Twitter as well. Follow her on all social networking. But DianaWest.net is where you go for the news information. And of course, from there, grab yourself a copy of The Death of the Grown-Up. That's uh, on the right of her website. And of course, the topic of our conversation, American Betrayal, and the follow-up if you so choose the rebuttal. Because the writing of the American Betrayal did cause this uproar among self-described conservatives. A select few, that is, but um, nonetheless, uh, enough where she had to rebut this, the uh, information being tossed out. So, fantastic series of books. Before the break, we were talking about really the, the current state of affairs, including John Brennan. Don't forget, John Brennan voted for a communist, Gus Hall, back in 1976, ultimately headed up the CIA under Obama. And during the break, we were speaking 
about the convergence of ideology back then versus today, or as it was back then, when I say back then, the infusion of the communist ideology into American institutions back in the 40s during World War II and post-World War II and today. And contrary to what Adam Schiff says and wants, wants all of us to believe, what we're seeing happen today did not happen, did not begin in 2016. It, it happened long before, and Diana West has laid it all out for us. Can we talk about the convergence uh, that we yeah. mentioned during the break? Yeah, I always imagine that convergence theory, it sounded like some kind of 1970s, hippy-dippy kind of idea. And I was very surprised to find quite a, a substantial amount of evidence that Franklin Roosevelt, who didn't really seem to believe in many principles, he believed in convergence. And a number of different people in his life wrote about this in various uh, memoirs and, and other um, writings. And what his idea was, and it was certainly pushed by his communist mentors and agents in all over his government in the 1930s. It actually really goes back to the 1930s um, where we see this really massive incursion after recognition of Soviet Union. Um, what it, it idea, uh, ideally was going to be was we would take on some of the aspects of the Soviet system and they would take on some of the aspects of the free system. So you would see sort of an 80-20, 70-30 exchange going both ways. And of course, what happened was we changed, we converged, and the Soviet Union didn't converge at all. <laughs> and the whole idea was always a um, fraud. But it was pursued in the sense that Roosevelt and the rest of his administration were eager to cover up the crimes of communism, the crimes of Stalin, eager to ally with him, eager to send all manner of Lend-Lease aid, and so on, boost them, enable them, empower them, make them bigger than they already were, which of course becomes a, a strategy covert strategy pursued by Stalin's secret agents. So it's sort of a continuum here. But it starts with this idea that freedom really should converge with socialism. And what we've seen ever since Roosevelt's administration particularly is exactly that. We have seen socialistic ideas and institutions take hold. And for a time, there were a number of our of our legislature legislators and journalists and American families and people and churches and everyone else who understood this ideology as subversive, subversion, subversion of our freedom, subversion of our constitution, subversion of our religion, and so on, subversion of our culture. And there was a war about this, and that's really what happened after World War II, and we see the early Cold War take shape, what we call the Cold War. I argue it was always on. Soviet Union was always trying to undermine us, again, through this virtual intelligence army it was deploying from recognition certainly forward even during World War II when we were allies so this idea of convergence has been very successful and indeed we see it today we know our college campuses are outposts of Marx we still can't see a, a clean repeal of Obamacare and all the other things that the government has gotten into in terms of running our lives and our schools and our everything so this is a real thing and it it continues, and you know, going back to what we were speaking of earlier, 
we see it in the in the normalization of Marxism going into Marx's third century. You know, if we can kind of interject, or if I can interject this, one thing I I learned from the, your book as well, kind of the same thing happened. Um, I, I'm not sure how to explain this, and maybe you can help me out because when when the Soviet Union fell, and I use that in air quotes, back in '91. George H.W. Bush really didn't. It was kind of like the the forty five nineteen forties deal light or two point in in a sense. Maybe you can help me out with explaining that because we were lied to. Well, this, we were lied to, and and this was a very interesting, horrible moment when you actually break it down because what we saw initially, and I call it the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the I believe that the Soviet government fell in a controlled, chaotic, but essentially was designed to reconstitute itself as part of a, a long-range plan that um, certain defectors uh, had talked about for quite some time. And a lot of their um, their uh, discussions of this, which they gave to us, have checked out. This would be um, very famous defector Golitsyn and later General Sena from Czechoslovakia who talked about this long-range strategy. It's really not that different from what happened in the 1920s, right after the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks took over, when Lenin came to the West and needed money because things weren't going well right away. They had famine, they had all, pro- all manner of, of misery. And so they weren't communist anymore, and they needed investment, and they wanted to have this capitalistic period that was known as NEP, the New Economic Policy. Well, that worked so well that they did this sort of cyclically over the decades. They would essentially tell us one thing, time for peaceful coexistence, time for detente, all of these code words, which always meant the same thing. We are fooling you, give us money. And essentially, at the time of this unraveling, um, which was you know, certainly messy and all the rest of it, we see an effort in the West to shore up the central government, not to let things really change, not to let the people really be free. And this is a very disturbing period um, because we also start to understand in the great uh, former Soviet dissident, or he was the founder of the dissident movement in the Soviet Union, Vladimir Bukovsky, he writes at length about this. He has a new book coming out, which I recommend, um, Judgment at Moscow. Um, He writes about how it was that this effort on the part of the West was actually an important support for the continuity of the Soviet regime in terms of the KGB, in terms of not opening up the archives. There was some opening, people are aware of there was opening, but there wasn't really the kind of opening whereby people go to the archives now and pull out documents. This was very managed, very controlled. They told us what they wanted us to know, essentially. So this is kind of, I think, what you're sensing about the shift. And it's just a true thing that the KGB did not go away. Um, The archives are still closed. The secrets are still kept. And the plan... The uh, Vladimir Putin just last year had world communist youth. I think it was 50,000 people from around the world, including America's Communist Party Senate contingent, whereby they participated um, in communist games, just like the old days. The games, I think, were 
dedicated to the memory of Che Guevara. I mean, some things never change, and it's very easy to put window dressing on it. And I think, again, this is something that we've seen over time. Again, this whole notion that we have to know the tricks, because there are only a certain number of tricks, but we keep seeing them repeat. And if we don't know them, we don't recognize them, we don't know how to deal with them. Uh, Very well said, and and thanks for helping me out on that, because when you look back in history, and, and just about everyone perhaps listening to this program can recall, depending on your age, uh, the, uh, the the so-called fall of the Soviet Union and how that was portrayed to the American public. And But really, the deception around that, you really point some good things out in your book. And, of course, Diana West is our guest. American Betrayal is the book we're talking about. If you don't have a copy, grab a copy. And if you need needs help, I'll buy you a copy. I mean, seriously, it's it's that important, I believe. Um, so, so uh, Ms. West, what we're seeing today with respect to uh, well, your writings on DianaWest.net, how things have converged, we're seeing, of course, this anti-Trump movement that uh, that involves these well, basically players with the, sharing the same ide- ideological, uh, uh, the same ideology, the, you know, the Brennans and the hidden start. That's the hidden start. Okay. Well, let's let's let's. Well, I, I started at what I call a thought experiment around Christmas time, looking at what felt very much like America living through a coup, an attempted coup against the incoming president or the, the president at that point. And I wanted to test the theory. I wanted to think about why it felt so strange. It didn't feel, I mean, we switch party power in, in America all the time, every four or eight years. In between the House and the Senate can change hands. We never see the kind of desperate measures that already were starting to spill out, certainly by the, by election night in 2016. Shortly thereafter, we started getting a sense of what was really going on. It was not normal. And it struck me when I was thinking about it in a quiet time over the holidays, it struck me that this was not about getting Hillary Clinton into the White House. These people would not be risking their careers, their pension, possibly their freedom, um, doing all of these crazy, desperate, illegal, seemingly to me, things, all these unlawful, all these certainly unethical acts in terms of organizing an intelligence operation aimed at the Trump team. I mean, that's where we are. I'm starting to think about it in terms of the old Soviet KGB term, active measures against the domestic political opposition. That's how bad it looks when you see the organization, the conspiracy. How is this not a conspiracy? So I thought, well, if this is true, if it's not normal, if this isn't just one party shifting ground for a short time, as usual, what is it? And I remembered that I'd seen Christopher Steele, the very famous ex-British intelligence agent, ex had been described in some news stories. You know, there's not a lot about him. He spent his career, um, you know, undercover, essentially. But there were stories about him when the, when the whole thing broke that discussed his very active life in Cambridge as a student where he was president of the debating society and was called a confirmed socialist. In fact, there was even talk that he was very involved with the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was a Marxist-infiltrated group in England back during what we call the Cold War. Well, that's interesting. I mean, there's there's an ideological cue. We know that he had tremendous anti-Trump animus, which I translate to hostility to all of the 
sort of the main things Donald Trump came in on. Sovereignty, borders, American jobs, America first, manufacturing, the kinds of things that essentially reconstitute America as a nation as opposed to a region of the globe, which is sort of where convergence has been taking us. So that's one person. Then, also in December, we had these sensational stories about Bruce Orr, a very senior Justice Department official, I think it was James Rosen at Fox News, it's one of the last things he wrote before he left Fox News, broke a story that James Rose, um, that Bruce Orr and his wife, Nellie Orr, were deeply involved in the GPS fusion, the, the group that, that, that commissioned the um, dossier paid by the DNC and the Hillary campaign, were very involved in the whole internal machinations. Nellie was a contractor for GPS Fusion at this time. She also, there was a tremendous leak to someone at Conservative Treehouse, who's a tremendous coup. They posted the fact that when, about the time she went on board with Fusion, she got a ham radio operator's license, which really does take one back to the Cold War because this was a way that actual spies used to try to communicate through these complicated microbursts and things like that that I can't explain, but it's a telltale. Who knows? Maybe she's just an enthusiast. We don't know, but this is where she went. Yeah, that's a ticket. Yeah. We also know that Bruce Orr was liaising, if that's a word, between Christopher Steele and the justice senior Sally Yates and also um, later Rod Rosenstein. And that after Christopher Steele was, uh, they, the FBI ultimately nixes him as a source uh, because he was talking to the media, and I believe it's October before the election, this, this, we learn that from actually the House Intelligence Committee memo, we learn that Bruce Orr continued to meet with Christopher Steele even after the FBI terminated him, which is strange, and that he also was feeding his wife's opposition research on Trump into the FBI, according to the House Intelligence Committee memo. Well, this is pretty astonishing stuff, so I tried to learn more about Nellie Orr and found that she, as an academic, has a paper trail. And this began a very long period of research, very boring research, I will say. Um, academic writings about the Soviet Union are not always exciting. But I was able to decode it at a certain point and learn that Nellie Orr is followed a school known as the Revisionists. And when you actually try to understand who the revisionists are, you can go to the revisionists themselves, a very well-known revisionist, one of the founders, named Sheila Fitzpatrick. She's a University of Chicago professor of many years. And she wrote kind of a an essay describing the uh, movement, which was sort of a 1970s, 1980s um, flowering, if you will, on our campuses, as having been founded by Marxists and New Leftists in the 1970s. Okay, that's Nellie Orr. All of her mentors, her sources that she likes the most come right out of that school and she includes apologetics on behalf of Stalin in her more accessible work, her reviews which are online, which I quote in my, my article about her. She talks about the terror and excitement of the Stalin era. I mean millions of people are being killed. How exciting is that? She talks also about the agonizing paradoxes of Stalin's dictatorship, meaning, and she explains this, there were good points and bad points. And you think, this is a very scary person to have at the center of what looks like a coup against the duly elected president. This is someone who believes in collectivism. There's more. 
in the piece. Then I go on to um, a State Department, kind of a slightly ancillary figure, and he's involved. He was doing his own kind of funneling of dossier-type material um, himself, Jonathan Weiner. And we find out just by, you know, open sources that he is a John Kerry devotee going back to his teenage years, um, back in the 1970s, shortly after John Kerry became very famous for, in uniform, um, trafficking with the North Vietnamese negotiators, the Paris Peace Talks. I mean, this is what he was drawn to and remained. He became Kerry's counsel and a very top member of Kerry's um, team. He worked on his presidential campaigns and so on. So I think we can see an ideology there on the very far Marxian left, um, communist. Then we can also look at John Brennan. And John Brennan, quite strangely, brought up the fact in shortly before the election that he had voted for the Communist Party candidate for president in 1976. Think about that. Brezhnev, I believe it's Brezhnev, is the Soviet dictator. And his support team in the United States is headed by a man named Gus Hall. And John Brennan, as a 21-year-old, granted, but old enough to have some opinions, voted for him. And what's interesting is he tells the story in terms of how great the diversity is at the CIA, because he fessed up during his lie detector test, I believe in 1980, that he had voted for the Communist Party ticket. And he thought that would bounce him, but no, no, he was invited, he was given a job. This is actually pretty astonishing, given where we were in the struggle with the Soviet Union in the 70s. This was a deep freeze period of the Cold War, and he was hired right into the CIA. And the other point I think it's important to make is that as he told the story, he did not cringe in embarrassment and say, oh my gosh, what an idiot I was. I was, I didn't know anything. I've learned so much. I'm now a committed anti-communist. I'm dedicated to the Constitution and the American, no. He just kind of, he just kind of shuffles it off as just an interesting attribute of his resume and how great the CIA is because they allowed a communist in. Communist voter, I guess I should say. But so the, this is where you start seeing there's more here than just politics, as usual, Democrat-Republican politics, there seems to be burning ideological Marxian animus driving this group to find each other and work together within the government. That's where we are. And of course, Barack Obama, we can go through, you know, all, so many of the principles in this same administration and people involved in, in, in this movement, this conspiracy, and you see very hard left, indeed, what we used to call red to parlor pink. That was another old-fashioned phrase. It's oh, very yeah. useful. Um, and, but the media is so afraid to discuss this, even to quote, for example, Nellie Orr. The, I'm happy the American Spectator published my article quoting extensively from her own work that reveals her, but this is something I have found other media, including conservative media, to shy away from. And that's a problem. Because again, this is, there's a continuity here, especially when we can now look at, for example, the communist, uh, publication, I mean, straight up open communist publication, People's World, which is, calls itself a continuation of the Daily Worker, actually writing pieces supporting Robert Mueller's probe and hoping that it continues and, you know, um, 
uh, warning against the terrors of a successful Trump administration. So this is where the ideology, where the, the political spectrum is. And again, we need to start recognizing it and asking questions about it and getting people to talk about it. And that, maybe we could also talk about one other thing about Nellie Orr. In 2010, she is listed as a um, uh, working at a place called Open Sources Workshop, which is an open source CIA analysis, uh, analysis component. Yep. CIA, I said CIA. Yes. Well, where are the questions about was Nellie Orr working for the CIA inside GPS Fusion as part of the same government-wide effort we're looking at. We've had the sensational news about Stefan Halper, a CIA asset, longtime asset, now discussed very openly, having been deployed by the FBI to insert himself into the good graces of the Trump campaign and dirty people up. It's not just looking for intelligence. This was an actual operation. Well, is Nellie or part of that? We don't know. And I will say that as wonderful as I find Devin Nunes, I think he's wonderful. I think their work has been wonderful. I'm so proud of them for, for sticking to this. The House Intelligence Memo that came out early in the year after President Trump declassified it, if you remember, it was supposed to, it was supposed to start volcanoes erupting and yep. earthquakes happening and fires breaking. Well, now it's an appendix in the House final report. And we have not gone farther than the original discussion of Nellie and Bruce Orr and their involvement in the creation of the Steele dossier. And that, I think, is a place to go back, especially now that we know about the CIA involvement in this operation against Donald Trump. And we know about Nellie Orr's CIA connection. We need to find out how long that was, the nature of it. Does she know John Brennan personally? Was it still ongoing? You know, what what's going on here? It, it's a big piece of the story. We still have a problem, even if she and no longer had a CIA connection. However, just having had one, and she's also a Russian speaker, etc., there's a lot here still to unpack. Very important that we not lose sight of. And for, for those people listening and, and watching this, you can go back or go, go to dianawest.net and look at what your series, a red thread runs through it, I believe, right? Yes, I'll repost, I'll repost a link to them all. Okay. Yeah. It, because... And, and folks, Nellie Orr is the wife of Bruce Orr, who was the number four guy at Maine Justice uh, for, for a long time. A long time. Demoted for not for not acknowledging Nellie Orr's contract work for Fusion GPS. That's the that's the theory. He was demoted. For, he has another big job, but he was demoted from that hierarchical elevation. Um, because he did not put her on the disclosure report as he should. And if you go back and look at how Nellie Orr was essentially hidden from view as long as possible by Bruce Orr, by Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS, um, also by Christopher Steele, who certainly never brought up that he had this opposite number, a Russian speaker with great experience. She also did research in the Soviet Union, which is another um, tell for people who look at intelligence matters, because, of course, the Soviet Union had certain restrictions on research, I mean, very onerous ones that people had to sign on to, Americans had to sign on to, and also they were very usually attempted to be recruited. It doesn't mean they, it doesn't mean that they signed on, it doesn't mean that they were, but these are known facts that, again, were sort of erased. It's like, it's like we've been bleach, bleach bitted, like Hillary Clinton's <laughs> homebrew server. 
we, we have to sort of go back to understanding the mechanism of communist subversion, and it applies to all of these players. That's how we have to start regarding them and learning about them. It, and it's so interesting to, to see the connections that, that you make, you've made, uh, you've made in your, in your series, the Red Thread series, uh, even come through today. Stefan Helper, of course, as you mentioned, the CIA asset, um, so many CIA connections. It goes back to John Brennan, as you said. And Joe, you had a question. Yeah, I, I know. I want to highlight a few tweets. Uh, President Trump said that uh, he demanded that the Department of Justice look into whether the FBI, DOJ infiltrated or surveilled his campaign for political purposes. And John Brennan put out a tweet that said, Senator McConnell and Speaker Ryan, if Trump continues along this disastrous path, you will bear major responsibility for the harm done to our democracy. You do a great disservice to our nation and the Republican Party if you continue to enable Mr. Trump's self-serving actions. And I want to ask you this while we're talking about the continuity of agenda. Obviously, Brennan is scared or concerned that something might come out. But with the media's spin on this thing that Trump is now threatening the rule of law, what happens when arrests begin and the mainstream media starts framing it as though President Trump is going after his political opponents just for the purpose of, uh, like what we saw with Hitler's takeover of Germany. And is this not what or they're going she to plan? Said Stalin's purge. Right. Isn't that, and how can, uh, I mean, the media obviously is on the side of these communists, on the side of this ideology. What can the president do when these uh, criminal charges start coming out, uh, if anything, to say, you know, this is lawful, this is right, this is constitutional, this is not a takeover? Uh, of my political opponents, but this is a legitimate investigation into criminal conspiracy. How can he make that any more clear than he has been? It's a great question, and I would set up the answer by saying, look at this situation. John Brennan never won elected office to anything. Donald Trump won 31 states in 2016. He's the duly elected President of the United States. You know, you just, the, the, the outrageousness of his role, of his, of his voice, public voice, is absolutely, I think, unprecedented for someone of his, um, position. We've never seen anything like this kind of vicious, viperish kind of polit- politicking. It's agitprop, it's propaganda. How can Trump defend against it? Well, his action today was fantastic. What was he waiting for? Hallelujah, brother. Great. This is absolutely what Donald Trump is finding his feet on this. That's what I am told by this latest um, in this ongoing saga that's happening to all of us. You know, this is not just things happening to people in Washington. This is happening to us. What can he do? It's what he can communicate with us. He can write and get his best speechwriters to help him with, but to speak in his own terms, the greatest speech outlining every single piece of this. Remember how Donald Trump used to campaign at the beginning of this whole phenomenal process? He would talk extemporaneously about things he knew about and cared about, and America was a big part of it for hours. Well, I'm not saying he has to talk to us for hours, but I do believe that if we get, and I hope we certainly hope we do because we should, Get to arrest. We don't, exposure alone is nothing without actual perp walks, without actual charges, prosecutions. We will never rid ourselves of any of this swamp life unless we start to see that kind of appropriate justice mechanism function. President Trump can talk to us. And he should. He shouldn't just tweet. He should address us in prime time. 
If the Mets won't ta- carry it, he should come on your show. He should go on Facebook. He should he should talk to us. He he can do that. He can talk right to the American people and explain everything, and it will be sensational. Well, we definitely uh, need to see some action. I know a lot of people, including myself, are frustrated with the fact okay. that people like Peter Strauch are still working in the, inside of the FBI having top-level security clearances. Jeff Sessions has still recused himself, but we do have the IG report coming out, which is uh, said that's going yeah. to be uh, have criminal uh, recommendations for criminal charges. Man, I, if I was thinking about this all day. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Do, do you have hope in the IG's report, John Huber, um, the prosecutor T side of this? Do you have hope in in in, in what's coming out, the, the IG's report? Well. I still think that oversight belongs in the Congress, and I would, I think that this, the mechanism is still in the Congress. The IG report, obviously, people have great expectations for it. I, I am waiting. I, I, so I guess you could say I'm reserving judgment. The most important thing about it, though, whatever it says and whatever can be done in Congress, is getting to the point of justice, of the, the, the prosecutory mechanism functioning. I don't see signs that that is going to happen unless we see some major changes at the Justice Department. This becomes a problem if we don't see that, and if we even if we expose people. Exposure, it turns out, and as a journalist, I hate to say it, but exposure is not enough. You need the man with the handcuffs and the jury box and the justice. And this is what we have missed with communist subversion, subversion of our Constitution, the kinds of perjury we get from testifying officials, such as James Clapper, a classic example, statute of limitations on his out-and-out perjury lapsed, I think, in March, no prosecution. This cannot continue. And so the, the Inspector General report, obviously hugely important. I you know wish him well. I hope it's incredibly incendiary. But we have to get to the point where we actually see trials. And again, even going back to the what I call the good old days of the big red hunters, we rarely saw we rarely saw serious prosecutions. We saw a few. Alger Hiss was famously prosecuted for perjury. There are a few others. Um, but we did not see the kind of um, justice that was called for in so many of these cases. And essentially, I believe that's why we lost. We won't get this chance again, I predict. So that's why this is so important. Faith in just Jeff Sessions? Faith in things the way they are right now? Do you have it? No, I don't. I don't. I know the argument by a lot of good conservatives that we cannot get someone better than Sessions in. I don't personally, you know, I I really can't speak to that. I can't believe that there's not some way to get an acting uh, prosecutor or bring people in or get rid of them you know, a swath of people who are blocking. I mean, we look at Judicial Watch does work of angels in terms of exposing government. They're suing all the time to get documents released that belong to the people. Well, I have heard on more than one occasion from them publicly, privately, talking about how it is that the Trump Justice Department is actually worse than the Obama Justice Department when it comes to stonewalling on documents. That is incredible. That just shows you how many holdovers there are, how how thick the bureaucracy is. What can Donald Trump do about that? He has to learn about it, and he has to come up to speed, as I think he is 
coming up to speed in these areas. So I think there's still hope, but we need a lot of change, not to coin a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> a little close there, but we'll, we'll take it. No, you're exactly, you're exactly right. It's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. I think, um, I'm kind of interested in the American, American's reaction. Once the IG's report comes out, once, once it's all said and done, if, if there's no action behind it, um, are conservatives ones to pick up pitchforks and torches or, or not? Not usually. I mean, we, it, it, it's very, it's very difficult, which isn't to say that rallies and protests and, and melting down phones, certainly in the Congress, have a, have a big impact. You know, these things, these things will play out, certainly if there is not justice in the, in the sense that the system does not work and it remains broken and the, the, the farce continues essentially and the swamp lives, I think you'll see tremendous disaffection, politically speaking, by people who believe Donald Trump represents this change. I think he does have tremendous sympathy for what he's up against in terms of you know, about 10 guys in, in the Congress who are on his side, everybody else against him, the media, the, the, the bureaucracies. I mean, he is surrounded. He didn't bargain for this. He was not prepared for this. But however, he is the one guy who stepped up with this brilliant idea to restore America as a nation. So, you know, can he get his sea legs while he still has political power? You know, all these things. It's a cliffhanger. It's a real cliffhanger. And, you know, we the people can help him by learning ourselves and following and keeping up and trying to um, hold everybody accountable. But it's very hard when the mechanisms are broken. And again, what, again, what he exposes, just as he did in our campaign, exposes, exposes the tremendous extent to which all of our mechanisms are totally, we're totally, I mean, it's just, we're so post-constitutional, it's not even funny. Can he be the, that restoration figure? You know, I hope so. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. Sounds I'm getting good. some feedback in my ear. Yeah, I don't I'm not know. Sure what that. Dan, when you were talking, we had uh, some static, some heavy static come through, and then um, with just the echo there at the end. So let's uh, hopefully oh, that we'll just, just cycled out. Yeah, we'll continue. If if you don't mind, um, Joe, did you, were you going to jump in with a question? Because I okay, all right. Just when we get to Pearl Harbor, you, you well, yeah, you wrote an incredible article on Friday, and if you don't mind us addressing this, I don't want time to run out before we do this. What is the U.S. military waiting for? Correct the injustice against Rear Admiral Kimmel and Major General Short. This regarding Pearl Harbor. Can we? Yeah. Because there's some there's some convergence here. Yes. You know. Yes, yes there is. Well, this is um, when I, I've met a lot of wonderful people through American Betrayal, and I have also met uh, the grandson. Uh, well, met as in pen pals, met the grandson of Rear Admiral Husband Kimmel, who was the naval commander at Pearl on December 7th in 1941. And this, what I put on my website was this remarkable distillation of this unbelievable scandal that most Americans have no idea about, which is namely that the commanders at Pearl were not given the same intelligence that Washington was in the run-up to the, quote, surprise, big quotation marks, it was not a surprise, attack. The Japanese attack was known about in the sense that 
we had broken the Japanese codes. A number of countries had, the British had, the Dutch had. There were various naval and military and diplomats trying to get word that they people knew that there was going to be some kind of an attack on American or English or Dutch forces, very possibly at Pearl Harbor, coming. I mean, this was not, it was not a secret. That's what's so amazing when you start to unpack all of this. Well, what happened was, after the attack, there were a number of investigations. Of course, we were at war, and the investigations would continue on after the war. Thousands and thousands of pages, unbelievable numbers of witnesses. And at the end of it, we have, over 75 years later, we have a situation where the scapegoat, wrongful, are still Admiral Kimmel and Major General Short, who are not informed about this imminent, likely attack. But they were blamed as being incompetent. And what I put on my website is this remarkable, it's really less than one page, it's 14 points, that um, the grandson of, of Admiral Kimmel, after Admiral Kimmel, his son, who I believe was a submariner during World War II, and now grandson, are carrying this, this matter of family and national honor on and on and on, trying to get Admiral Kimmel's restored as uh, on the um, the way it, it's done in the military in terms of on the, the, the post-retirement um, records because he was not at fault. And indeed, what, what Tom Kimmel has put together is a list of the the subversion of our own government, the corruption mm-hmm. that went into making these two commanders scapegoats. It included lying, it included suborning perjury, it included all manner of manipulation and, and deflection. It's it's a sorry, sorry story. However, it is actually not in doubt. I mean, it's not made up, right. it's not conjecture, it's real. And so right now, as of the end of, of April, um, Tom Kimmel, the grandson, who's a retired FBI agent himself, these are this is a family that serves our country, in other words, he was able to present to the Board for Correction of Naval Records this brief. And it's such a brief brief, which really is great for people to read about because, honestly, it's a mare's nest to try to wade into, again, these thousands and thousands of pages of testimony and confusing um, discussions and so on that essentially were so much deflection from what he has distilled on behalf of his grandfather. It's a great, you know, it's a great family story. It's a great American story. It's a great war story. But it's a real story. And it's about a real family and, and a real hero. And so, you know, the more people who know about it, I think the more chances they have of finally getting this, this successful re- correction. It's, it's, it's something that's due, the Kimmel family. It's due Admiral Kimmel, and I, I certainly hope they're successful. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we do too, and we've interviewed a number of people based, uh, specifically on this issue, James Perloff being one of them, where he documents uh, these same documents showing that there was advanced warning Yes. given to Washington, D.C. three days before the attack, saying that a Japanese-style attack was uh, due to, to hit Hawaii, and Washington yeah. dismissed uh, those. But our question is, what was the Why? motive? We've heard, Why? to get us into World War II, we've heard a number of... Do you know yeah. or have any insight on why they would allow Pearl Harbor to be attacked? Well, the Roosevelt administration was desperate to go to war to help the Soviet Union, literally, against Nazi Germany. And one of the first things that sort of sent me off on my American betrayal 
detective story, because it really is a, a detective story more than a history book, really. It's written in the first person, and it sort of presents these uh, these strange items as they occur to me or as I find them and lead to the next. Um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the military assumed that all manner of support would be going to General MacArthur in the Philippines, who was also attacked on December 8th. They were told to unload the ship, literally told to unload and redirect everything to Europe. And thus begins one of the strangest and most upsetting questions about World War II. It's the opening question. Why was the Pacific War not supported from that initial Japanese attack on our Pacific fleet? And this is a question that was a very bitter one. Um, the American people wanted support for our, remember, the, the famous horrors that would befall our troops in the Philippines and the Filipino troops under our command. We've heard, all heard of Corregidor, and later, after the surrender, the Bataan Death March. I mean, these, this is what happened as a result of the Pacific War being essentially unsupported. And what is actually documented in American Betrayal is the British assumed, I mean, they were fighting in Europe, they assumed that America after Pearl Harbor would obviously re-strategize and look to the Pacific, but no. And this is where you start seeing the very strange activities of Harry Hopkins and General Marshall, Harry Hopkins being FDR's top aide, who very uh, some very significant experts believe was actually a Soviet agent of influence, living in the White House and advising uh, President Roosevelt as the second most powerful man in Washington. Um this begins this strange effort to enter into the European theater and starve, essentially, the Pacific theater. And at the same time, Roosevelt is telling MacArthur, oh, supplies are on the way, literally. I mean, this is what's going on. It was absolutely, MacArthur is building landing strips in the jungle 24-7, expecting supplies. It, it's, we didn't know about this as a country until long after the war, because it, it the war was on, and we had to win the war, and there was censorship, and also a sense of the country pulling together, you know, and, and getting involved in the war effort. The story spills out over time, and it's it's a very ugly story. On top of that, you say, well, why? Why would this be? The Soviet Union did not want to fight a two-front war. The Soviet Union was at peace with Japan until the last couple of days of World War II. I mean, literally, they had a non-aggression pact that was enforced. Remember, they're fighting in Germany, I mean, in Europe. They didn't want to fight the Japanese who were moving all over the Pacific area in Siberia. This was their great fear. They actually deployed a honest-to-goodness spy ring to Tokyo and to Washington, D.C. The spy ring in Tokyo was run by a very brilliant uh, Soviet spy named Richard Sorga, he had tremendous sourcing and, 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 and agents inside the, the Japanese government, driving the power of the war party, suppressing the peace party, which existed under, under Prince Kanoya, who desperately did not want to fight America, and actually trying to influence the Japanese away from the Russian front, in, or from starting a Russian front. This would allow Stalin to move very valuable troops that were on the eastern side of his empire to Europe. And that's exactly what happened. In America, we were so desperate to enter the war, so desperate, the communists in our government were so desperate not to have any kind of peace with the Japanese that we actually see a Soviet agent, KGB agent, deployed to Washington 
who meets with one of the top spies in the Roosevelt administration, Harry Dexter White, who was, became number two at the Treasury during the war. They meet across the street from the Treasury, no kidding, in Washington, D.C., hmm. and the spy's name is Pavlov, actually gives Harry Dexter White language to insert into the cable flow with Japan that would be seen as an ultimatum. It was language written in Moscow, literally. It all came together in one of the most brilliant multi-continental espionage operations I have ever read about. It was tremendous. It worked. And this is essentially sort of the short story about what was going on backstairs to push us into war that Roosevelt was very eager to get into himself, even though he had campaigned in in 1940 on a non-interventionist ticket. Or, or agenda. Your boys will not be going to foreign wars, he promised again and again. Even as he was planning getting in, getting to getting into the war into the war. Does that make sense? Is that yeah, cogent? It, yeah. Absolutely. And it almost seems as if um well as you point out in, in your book American Betrayal, folks Diana West is our guest in case you're just joining us. Um, uh, Diana West, American Betrayal is the, the book, one of, uh, a number of books, including The Death of a Grown Up and, uh, The Rebuttal, but, uh, American Betrayal, The Secret of Soul of, on our, I'm sorry? That's the, most, that, that's the most relevant to our daily existence at this point, strangely yes. enough. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, but, but it's, it seems as if that we were, fi- uh, when, when I read that in, in the article that, that you that you wrote and published on Friday, it, it just seems as though we were catering to everything Soviet Union um, and have been for the last hundred years. Well, that's that's sort of the dirty little open secret um, that really most clearly defines our our history. Unfortunately, I mean this. We have a sense of ourselves, and I do too. I mean, my father was a very proud veteran of the Normandy invasion. It was, um, I think, till the day he died, I think it was a high point, or if not the high point, of his entire life. Um, he was D-Day plus two. He did not actually take Omaha Beach. He was always very um, correct about that. But he did have um, quite a lot of fighting that began at the Battle of San Lo. <clears throat> and he was wounded and on and on and and <clears throat> you know so this this was a shocking thing for me to discover but what i finally came to understand that basically the gist of this tremendous infiltration by soviet agents into our war councils essentially were all about keeping the war going long enough so that the soviet union could expand outside its borders we see that in the uh, suppression of Surrender efforts by the Germans, not, not the Nazis, the anti-Nazi Germans. There were quite a number of them. Various military, religious, political figures who were trying to surrender. They were anti-communists though. They didn't want the Soviet Union to come into Europe and they wanted help to keep them out. This was essentially always the deal. They would turn over Hitler's high command to us, but they didn't want the Soviet Union to replace him, which is what happened. So they were essentially blocked by communist agents in Washington and I found that with Lachlan Curry, who was literally one of the presidential top administrative assistants and a Soviet agent involved in blocking this kind of um, potential, and also at the um, OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, where you see a man named Franz Neumann on the German desk. Well, he was a German, he was a German communist refugee, part of the Frankfurt School, and 
a Soviet agent. And he, too, is coloring and characterizing this same effort as something we should have nothing to do with. So you see how influence is so important. It's not just about stealing secrets. That's really the secondary aspect of espionage. The most important thing is shaping policy. So in, in Europe, the war could end too soon if you were Stalin and you were still behind the Soviet Union's border and you weren't into Germany, which is where they got to on about, what, 500,000 Dodge trucks that we had supplied them through Lend-Lease. Khrushchev later said he could not have gotten to Germany without our Dodge trucks. So that kind of gives you something to think about. And then in China, we see the same kind of effort, or in the Pacific, rather, where I've learned this more recently, and I, I think I'm most depressed about this than anything I've actually ever seen. There were surrender efforts coming out of Japan. They were desperately trying to make contact through Switzerland, the Pope, the Soviet Union. I mean, lots of luck with that, given it was their plot. Trying to figure out how to surrender, trying to understand what the terms were. Um, the terms were essentially they were most concerned with keeping their emperor, which is essentially what they got after two atomic bombs. But even in January of 1945, MacArthur had a surrender plan from them that was rejected earlier, too. You see other efforts. They went to Moscow and tried to peace parley through the Russians. We were reading these cables because we had broken their code. Couldn't get anywhere. Because, again, if the Soviet Union had not gotten to China... By the end of August, or by the beginning of August, I should say, in 1945, they would not have been able to take Manchuria. They would have not gotten North Korea. They would have not gotten the Kuril Islands. And we would not have had a Korean War. We would not have had a Vietnam War. And we would not be dealing with Kim Jong-un today. I mean, there are so much relevance to this tremendous um, just hijacking of our government that um, most people were not aware of, um, most people didn't mean for it to happen, and yet there was a cadre of agents who were very dedicated and very um, committed, and they were able to kind of move things around and keep things going and la, 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 and all of a sudden, you are in this terrible pickle. It's, pickles is a bad word. It's too flip, but you are in this crisis that has really never stopped. And I, I guess that's why it seems so relevant today, because our world today is the world that was created by this chaos and destruction of the Second World War. The way you frame that, just that that line of succession, the way you frame that, the events, the historical events, incredible to hear, difficult to hear. My father, yeah, yeah. I mean, my father was he fought in the South Pacific, uh, Uh, you know, and my uncle was part of the D-Day invasion. Uh, He's buried in Arlington. so, you know, so th- this is personal to, to our generation, to this generation, but it's, I mean, look at where we're at today. Uh, we've got about three minutes left. Uh, Diana, you've been so gracious with your time. Uh, anything to, to wrap it up in three minutes, the floor is yours. Oh, well, you're very kind. Well, it's a lot to wrap up in three minutes, but I think, again, it's this um, this desperate need for knowledge that we don't get in our schools we don't get on our campuses remember Nellie Orr the revisionist coming out of Marxists and new leftists and so on I mean this is sort of where our children are being um, and grandchildren are being um, conditioned so it does fall to us to do our our homework again and 
you know, I, I am so grateful to you for not only this wonderful um, opportunity to speak to your viewers, but also the care with which you're treating this, this history and the effort you're making to um, relearn it. It's something I am doing, too, every day. I mean, I, it took me three and a half years to write and research American Betrayal, and what I still am amazed by, even five years later, is how much more needs to be done. And one reason I have almost a thousand endnotes in the book to show people where this absolutely outlandish information is coming from um, is because it helps people learn where to look. Because there's a whole world of, of history to rewrite, I find. And um, this was something that my, my great friend M. Stanton Evans, who died a couple of years ago, he was the, um, his wonderful book is Blacklisted by History about Joseph McCarthy. And he basically came to the conclusion that pretty much everything we've been taught about the 20th century is a lie, a distortion, um, an omission, which can be just as bad. And we have a lot of work to do. Indeed. And M. Stanton Evans, speaking highly of your book, uh, writing this explosive book, meaning American Betrayal, long-needed answer to court histories uh, that continue to obscure key facts about our backstage war with Moscow must read and it's it, it goes on but uh uh Dinah West thank you so very very much this is an incredible learning experience all of our listeners and viewers appreciate your time your expertise your intellectual product and wow just thank you <laughs> well thank you and write to me if people have questions i love hearing from people or if they have experiences i've heard a lot of great experiences from people who have similarly family in in these uh same same theaters okay Please, contact me. All right. Diana West has been our guest. God bless you, Diana. Thank you, and, and have, a, have a great night. You folks, too. Wow. Folks, what a gracious lady. What an informative segment. Mm-hmm. Please share this with other people and take her up on her offer. Write to her and tell her you heard her on the Hagman Report. Follow her on Twitter. Just put, push this segment. Um make this well known because how this Joe you know one, one thing when she was talking how the events of today are are so connected to the world yeah. war 2 yeah and i got to tell you listening to her book it's a it was a different experience listening to her book than reading her book um i don't know why that is but, but I, so i had to go back and look at her book um but the things that are happening today so tied into Absolutely, they are, and they, they've been part of uh, globalist policy for 50 to 100 years. Whether you believe the Albert Pike's letter of the three world wars, the shadow government, the deep state since its inception, uh, you know, being the Illuminati or whatever group you want to attribute it to, Freemasonry, the, the secret societies, Bilderberg's Council on Foreign Relations, they all have been working towards the same agenda. Hey, ask Martin Miller. That, that, that's all conspiracy nonsense, right? It's not just an American agenda. It's a global agenda to move us towards a one-world government-type system. And they are uh, moving at breakneck speed, specifically with technology and what we see with uh, what Patrick Wood talked about last week. But we're going to continue moving forward with Peter Chowka coming up next in his usual Monday spot. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is the Hagman Report for today. It's Monday, 
May 21st, 2018. It almost seems funny for me to say May 21st. It, it, it seems like, I don't know, time is just really going fast. But I'm, I'm welcoming the spring-like weather. Hopefully it's a spring where you're at, or at least more temperate weather conditions. It was a long winter to be sure. Uh, how about that? How about the uh, segment with, with uh, Diana West? Incredible stuff. And if we connect the dots, the historical dots, we can see we didn't arrive where we're at overnight. It took planning, deliberate operational active measures, as she put it. To me, that's so important to really understand the backstory. And uh, no better person to tell it than Diana West. And, of course, now coming up, Peter Chowka talking about the present day. He's got an article at Hagman Report. He writes for Hagman Report and American Thinker. You can find his articles both places. Uh, such an incredible mind, Peter Chowka. Before we get to Peter, uh, I, I was talking with my niece, well, my wife's niece, and she, I, I told you this story. She was involved in a, in a pretty acrimonious divorce, and there were outstanding credit card bills, and she was in a, a real mess with her credit card bills, and we figured out that she was paying upward. 15% interest on, on our credit cards. And just at that moment in time, we found Lightstream, lightstream.com slash Hagman. And it was through Lightstream, lightstream.com slash Hagman. It was through Lightstream that she was able to consolidate. She had good credit. She consolidated nurse. I mean, and, but she consolidated her credit card debt into one low payment. And I would urge everyone listening to this, sometimes, quite often, consolidation of credit card debt, it makes sense. So let me ask you, are you paying more money in interest than you need to on your credit cards? Take a look. Well, you can refinance your debt with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate. Credit card consolidation loans from 5.49% APR with auto pay and no fees. I love this because the application is 100% online. It's a very simple, very painless process. Money is deposited directly into your account, so you are in control. You can even get your funds as soon as the day that you apply. And again, I, I speaking with my wife's niece how that worked out for her so well. She's saving a lot of money, and it was such an easy process. So here's what we'd like you to do. Apply today and get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low interest rates. Now, the only way for listeners to this show, the Hagman Report, with good credit to get the special interest rate discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Hagman. That's Lightstream, L-I-G-H-T, S-T-R-E-A-M, lightstream.com slash Hagman, and that's two N's on Hagman, H-A-G-M-A-N-N. So lightstream.com slash Hagman, that's where you go to get this fantastic deal. Now, this is subject to credit approval, and of course, rates, the rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount available only when you select auto pay prior to loan funding. Terms and conditions apply, and offers offers are subject to change without notice. Visit Lightstream.com for important information about limits on Lightstream. 
loans and same-day financing. But it just makes sense oftentimes, and you've got to be very sensible with your money. My wife and I talk about money. We budget our money to the penny. I mean, I boy, you, you $10 missing, where did the $10 go? I mean, you know, it's a, it's like, uh, sit down, we need to talk. But, but some, again, sometimes it makes sense, lightstream.com slash Hagman. Now, Peter Barry Chalka, did you see, did you, have you seen his article? Yeah, My I have. And, and if we can start somewhere else, well, wherever yeah, Peter wants well, to start, okay. I want to bring this to Peter's attention. I just caught this off realclearpolitics.com. Democrats roll out anti-corruption message for 2018. Uh, Chuck Schumer and other Democrats are sick of Trump's broken promises to drain the swamp. Wait, it's did you say Democrats? Yes, yes, Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer. Oh, okay. Are, are putting out, uh, talking points for the Democratic leaders outlining various government reform proposals. Huh. And he goes on to say that, uh, the unprecedented level under President Trump demonstrating a blatant disregard for the laws and norms in place to prevent public corruption goes on to say that, uh, Schumer saying that Trump, uh, promised to drain the swamp but is doing no such thing and has forgotten America. And is breaking all the laws in the process. Maybe that comes under the the heading of "Be careful what you wish for," right? I don't know where these people get the gall to do and say what they do, but the article, in summary, ends up by saying, "In Monday's message rollout, congressional Democrats argue that while corruption appears to be the perpetual theme in Washington, it has been taken to an unprecedented level under President Trump, demonstrating a blatant disregard for the laws and norms in place to prevent public corruption." Interesting. Well, Peter. At Pete Chalka on Twitter. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Doug. Great to be with you guys again tonight. Okay, we, and, we uh, need a cat we're joined by yep. We were joined by Lulu, but she just uh, left, and I think Biggie is still on my right. <coughs> Biggie is the male support cat. He's about five years old. He's a rescue, solid gray. He's been here since October of 2014. And Lulu was enjoying the catnip, but she's gone to uh, look at the view out the window, so maybe she'll rejoin us. And just a brief note about my health, which um, I like to describe it as uh, better than some, but not as good as most at this point. And, uh, you know, two weeks ago t- today, I had rather uh, an unpleasant health incident, and a number of people on Twitter and otherwise stepped forward to say that they were offering me prayers, which I really appreciate and I continue to need and appreciate. So if anybody's listening or viewing and is so inclined, please go for it. And I've had a few people on Twitter communicate with me who said they're praying for me, but they had a medical need as well and they would appreciate my praying for them, which I'm more than happy to do. So if there's anybody in that category who needs prayer for a, a medical or other condition, you know, feel free to reach out to me and we'll do a back and forth, and um, I think it works. Well, so you, you're gonna, we need to take care of Peter. You, you ain't going anywhere. We, we got we, we got work to do, Peter. We we so we have to keep you upright, uh, taking nourishment, and uh, just keep pumping out those articles because you, you are just really knocking 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 them dead with the articles that you're. Um, pumping out the information that you're giving so we're glad by the way we're glad you're you're better um Mm -hmm. but prayers keep going with prayers uh thank you very much i'm doing a lot better and uh, i realize that i can be pretty productive from my seat on the comfortable seat on the couch here surrounded by computers and cable news channel and able to do research and uh typing articles 
So I did uh, two major ones in the last two days, actually, and maybe we can start there. Although no, it's not, it it's not the full story because although these articles are about the media, uh, the wide-angle view of what I'm reporting on, if you read them closely, is the big picture again. And I know in the in the first hour, in your introduction, you were talking about the campaign against uh, so-called alternative media people like Alex Jones, and that's going on, we know, at that end against citizen journalists and uh, YouTubers and Twitter uh, on that level, but it's also going on on the level of the mainstream media and the only mainstream media outlet that offers any kind of fair and balanced coverage of President Trump in its news reporting and that also has conservative commentators, and that of course is Fox News, which is so underreported, Peter. And this is, and I just, I don't, and this is the last time I'm going to inter- interject, but this is why that we need people to, to listen to what Peter says, because yes, we talk about the alternative media, we talk about the Infowars, we talk about us, we talk about, but we don't talk about enough what's taking place against um, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, uh, Fox News. So there you have it. That's I just want to kind of give my imprimatur, if you will, into what you're saying. Right. Fox News is in the crosshairs. And just another brief comment. Whenever I talk about the media here or I write about media issues, cable news wars, etc., on American Thinker, uh, inevitably I get comments from people who say, you're wasting our time. Why are you talking and writing about the mainstream media? They're all globalists. They're all in the tank, including Fox News. And not that I need to defend against that, because anybody who says that, in my opinion, is an ignorant, uneducated fool. But obviously, uh, the cable news, I mean, there's a reason we call it mainstream media, because most Americans who are interested in politics get their news from the mainstream media. Of course, those of us who uh, go on the Internet and have developed our own primary sources, and there are millions of us now, but we are not yet in the majority. So it helps to take a look at what is helping to brainwash and zombify the nation and the exception of Fox News. And of course, that is a major exception. It has been in the last year. And before I start, I just want to mention that um, on Saturday, that is two days ago, May 19th, it was the... um, (laughs) Biggie's doing something special back, back of me. Uh, it was the first anniversary of my writing, starting to write again for American Thinker. And on May 19, 2017, I wrote a 4,000-word article at American Thinker, which was called, With Fox News' Ratings in Freefall, the Future Looks Bleak. And this was a, an attempt at a comprehensive overview of the cable news landscape and Fox News which had gone from a reliable conservative source uh, up until 2016 when Roger Ailes, the co-founder and CEO, was fired, and then Bill O'Reilly left in April of last year, and things were really shaky exactly one year ago at this time at Fox News. So I took a a cold, hard look at that, and then uh, I developed that beat without really planning to, that that, uh, media, cable news, alternative news beat for American Thinker. And since then, I've written 127 articles in the last 52 weeks, not all of them about the media. I've written about other things, too, like the Charlie Gard case in England last summer. I wrote more than a half dozen articles on that. But I continue to write 
a lot about the media because when you develop an expertise in an area like that, and of course I've been interested in it and reporting on it all my life and working in and around the media for much of my life, and also you develop, as in the case of the last year, um, inside sources who you can rely on and trust. You can't necessarily quote them all the time, but they really help to inform you about what is going on, and it's a really important story. And All you have to do is look at the aim that is taken at Sean Hannity and his conservative colleagues there. A day doesn't go by when there aren't major articles in the mainstream media, as well as reporting on CNN and MSNBC and other liberal platforms that are taking direct aim at Sean Hannity in particular. They are throwing everything at the wall in an attempt to take this man down. And I'm still not convinced that they won't or that he will decide on his own to leave Fox News because uh, before I get into a brief discussion of these two current articles, uh, the information I'm developing, which I haven't really written about yet because it's a big challenge to get into this subject, is that uh, I, I see really dark days ahead for the future of Fox News. This past Wednesday, it was announced that Lachlan Murdoch, the 46-year-old son of Fox News uh, founder and uh, mogul Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch is now the number one man at what they are calling the new Fox. That is the scaled-down 21st Century Fox after most of it is sold to Disney and what's left will be the Fox News Channel, Fox Business Network, Fox uh, Broadcast Channels, Fox Sports, whatever that is, and one or two other little properties. But the cash cow there, amazingly enough, is Fox News. And Lachlan Murdoch is now the number one man running the show. That announcement came on Wednesday. He is uh, supposedly the more conservative or, or moderate of Rupert Murdoch's two sons, but that's not saying a lot because he ain't no Rupert Murdoch. Uh, he's much more liberal than his old man, and uh, he's had a rather undistinguished career, in my opinion. I believe he dropped out of Harvard to start a hip-hop record company, which failed, and then his father bailed him out by buying that for a few million dollars. He, Lachlan is kicked around between Australia, England, and the United States. You know, he's a uh, up-and-coming mogul citizen of the world, and his wife, as well as the wife of his brother James Murdoch, uh, is even more liberal than he is. So look out there. Another announcement on Thursday, it was announced with a great deal of fanfare that uh, Suzanne Scott was appointed the CEO of Fox News. Now, that's the first permanent appointment of a CEO for Fox News and Fox Business Network since Rupert, uh, since Roger Ailes was fired in July of 2016, almost two years ago, after allegations were published that he had sexually harassed female employees of Fox News. So he was let go, and that largely upended uh, the direction of the Fox News channel for the next year at least, and it still hasn't really righted the ship to this point. But now we see that somebody is in charge. Uh, to her credit, she was a close associate of Roger Ailes and was responsible. Uh, she's been with the company, with Fox News, since the beginning, 22 years. She has had a lot of experience with making programming decisions, including with prime time programming. So she's obviously a smart woman, very experienced, we presume she has uh, conservative tendencies if she's had a major role all of these years, but 
The jury is still out on what happens when Lachlan Murdoch really continues or begins to exert major, major control. So on, let's see, on Friday, I started writing an article, which I better refresh my memory on here because my memory is lacking a bit. Okay, where are we? Well, actually, let me... By the way, Peter Barry Chalka, his article is going to be found at HagmanReport.com and American Thinker. So just, folks, bookmark Hagman Report and also consult American Thinker for Peter Barry Chalka and follow him on Twitter, at Pete Chalka on Twitter. Right, I got here now. So on Friday, I spent quite a bit of time researching and writing this article, which went online at American Thinker at 5 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, May 19th. So that was the exact one-year anniversary of my first article, and it felt... I hadn't planned it that way, but it felt like sort of wrapping things up there because it was taking a look at Fox News again from a cold, hard perspective, and it wasn't all positive. And at American Thinker, it was titled, Fox's Brett Baer Draws the Line, Sean Hannity is a Problem. Now, this article is basically an update on what I had written about several times in the past, including most recently two months ago, when I documented how there is a widening split at Fox News between several key on-camera members of the so-called news department, hard news, and the evening opinion hosts, as they are known. That is Sean Hannity, the most visible and popular, Laura Ingram, and Tucker Carlson. All three of those are unabashed conservatives, and they do opinion-themed shows, although increasingly they are making a lot of room and a lot of airtime for whacked-out liberals on their programs, which is another disturbing development, but I won't dwell on that at the moment. So anyway, Brett Baer last week, he is the uh, key political news anchor of Fox News. He's like the number one face of the Fox News channel when there's uh, election coverage, primary coverage, debate coverage, etc. And he has a new book about uh, Gorbachev and Reagan, and it's generally thought that he's he harbors conservative tendencies, although he plays it very, very straight. There's Brett appearing on The View. As part of his promoting this book, he went to New York City. He appeared with Sean Hannity on his program Tuesday, and a day and a half later, Thursday morning, he appeared live on that terrible ABC program, women's program, The View, which is like walking into uh, the lion's den. Although they gave him a fairly uh, respectable hearing, but of course they didn't want to talk that much about the book. They wanted to talk about what's going on at Fox News, and they actually got him to say in his own words, and I quote this from the transcript in my article, HagmanReport.com, you can read it there. Uh, He admitted that Sean Hannity is a problem to him as a news person, and and he said it's uh, about a 6 out of 10 in terms of a problem. Now, when I saw this, uh, I didn't really know what to make of it, and I went back, and I, I did see him say a similar thing on Sean Hannity, so I went back, rewatched the Hannity program, got the transcript of that, wrote this article, and the uh, analysis I put on it is that you know, this is not a smoking gun that Brett Baer is an enemy of conservatives, but it, it's an, a rather unusual, and I would venture, uncalled for opinion 
for a news person at Fox to make under the, the current situation where the opinion hosts are right in the crosshairs. And of course, every other media out there immediately went to print or or on other cable news channels was reporting of what Brett Baer said. Did, so did you was, see this coming, though? I, I, I have to ask this, because I didn't see this coming. Brett I didn't Baer. see it coming with Brett Baer. I mean, previously I'd written how uh, Chris Wallace, who anchors the Fox News Sunday yeah. a morning talk show, and um, who was the other one? Chris Wallace. Oh, and uh, Shepard Smith, of course, who anchors... Yeah, there's Brett with Sean Hannity on uh, last Tuesday night when they were almost like joking where Sean was pressing the point and saying, well, am I a problem for you? I'm paraphrasing. You can read the transcript on the article. You know, am I a problem for you? And Brett, Brett said, yes, you are. And they were kind of almost joking, but I don't know. It was pretty subtle, but it didn't seem like he was joking on the view. So, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I mean, what I did was I wrote this article pretty straight from the facts, from the transcripts, and it was another case of I report, you decide. And this article was really widely read at American Thinker for Saturday. It got over 370 reader comments. It was vigorously discussed there. It was very high up on the page views at American Thinker on Saturday before it scrolled off. And then before Saturday had ended, I uploaded it to actually a... a well, this is interesting, too. I uploaded a version of that article to HagmanReport.com, but in so doing, I added a brand new 500, no, 700-word introduction, and I gave it a new title as well. Now, let me just say, tonight I'm wearing uh, what I call my, my flak vest here. Not really, but it, it... You might need it, brother. It's my... No, I do need it because with these two articles, amazingly enough, I was getting flack and attacks from all sides, from some of the sources I cited but did not name, uh, from American Thinker. They were coming at me from multiple directions. You know, they're the trolls, they're people on uh, the uh, pro-Fox News right the anti-Fox News right, who are holier than thou. I mean, and, uh, I did get a few positive I, I was, comments. I was reading those comments. Look, I, I, I read the comments, and I don't get it, Peter. You struck something with that article. Um, well, at I, least at least it gets response. You know, the worst thing is when you post an article, and American Thinker has a very big readership, but they post anywhere from 18 to 22 new articles a day. And then two-thirds of those scroll off and disappear, although they're still in the archives. And the feature articles uh, kind of fall down until 11 days, and then they're gone. But I found that unless your article is very near the top of the pecking order, uh, it's not going to get the page views because most people are accessing these sites on their phones. Right. And a dirty little secret is... Uh, most people who go to these political websites access at most two or three pages in addition to the home page. So if they don't hit on your article first, they're going to miss it. So, you know, I would rather get a vigorous discussion uh, even attacking me. I don't really care. I mean, I don't take it personally, really, uh, than have no response at all. So, you know, I, I do appreciate that, and I shouldn't make it appear that I'm whining. No, I'm not whining. I, I appreciate the readership and, and the vigorous discussion. That's what it's all about. But um, Well, you know, it's, when- a, it's a pro- Peter, I, again, 
it surprised me that the the reaction is not the problem. It's the visceral response, not just from one side, but from both sides. I I, I didn't see where uh, the, to to me there's there's this ideological divide that I, I don't think we're ever going to. I don't think we're going to. It's getting worse. It, you know. It, it, in it fact, is. when I when I flash back to my article for American Thinker one year ago that started this whole thing off for me. I mean, I'd written for American Thinker before from 2007 to 2010, and then I took a six or seven year hiatus while I was writing on other subjects, like my friend, the late Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, and taking care of a lot of personal business. But I resumed a year ago at American Thinker, and, and it's a great forum, I have to say. And, um, but it's, it's devolved in that year because of, I would say, the devolution of the readership and of everybody now, the hardening of people in their different camps, the polarization. And just to mention this briefly, I got a real dose of this one week ago tonight when I dipped my toe in the QAnon phenom discussion. And I I don't even want to go there tonight because that is really lose-lose. But I really got taken to the cleaners or to task for apparently saying anything about QAnon. I mean, when you say anything about that phenomenon, you're going to get hit. And oh, yeah, Peter. And called every name, you know, you shill, you flake, you ignoramus, I'm leaving you, I'm unfollowing you. Hey, you don't agree with uh, everything that the person says or question, you know, anything about it, then you're automatically a, a communist Hillary Clinton supporter. Yeah, and I wasn't even giving a definitive opinion on QAnon, although interestingly in the past week I, uh, out of curiosity, I delved even more into it and I watched a number of Jerome Corsi's YouTube videos in addition to a number of the people who are decrypting what is supposedly QAnon now. Some claim that's not the real QAnon, not the original QAnon, who knows, but really I should just cut it off there because it's it just riles people up. Oh, just a brief aside before I forget. I'm not able to follow the um, live YouTube chat as the program progresses here. However, that's because we don't watch it too. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. YouTube, YouTube now, as you know, archives the chat. So mm-hmm. if you go back and look at the entire three-hour program, as soon as that goes online, as soon as this ends, it's live broadcast. Uh, there's the chat, and I do read and take often take notes on. Uh, the live chat. So if anybody has a, a question or something they want to comment or ask me directly, you can do it there and I will see it and maybe I'll try to respond somehow. And the other way, of course, people can get to me is on Twitter, twitter.com slash pchowka, P-C-H-O-W-K-A. That's the address on the screen behind me in yeah. red. And, yeah, uh, and there it is. And, and by the way, Peter, uh, just for a point of clarification, I don't know how if somebody put, put a... Um, a question in the chat on the YouTube feature without their knowing their email address. I don't know how you respond to them. Well, if it's important enough, I'll respond on the next show. Okay. Or uh, I, I, I got to think about that. You know, maybe I'll have to come up with a public email address. But for the moment, uh, you know, at least I'll take it to heart. I will read it and see it and maybe comment on it. And uh, also, I want to not to get too far afield here, but. I'm going to forget a lot of this stuff if I don't mention it when it comes to mind. Uh, people are sending me pictures of their uh, cats and, to some extent, dogs, and I would encourage both. 
I've had some really interesting direct message discussions on Twitter uh, about cats. And it also turns out that people who seem very committed to their support cats also happen to be very interesting, uh, intelligent, and knowledgeable people about exactly what we are doing here. And in fact, I tweeted uh, that cat, Tango, a, a follower of, of mine on Twitter, tweeted me that photo, and uh, I, I selected that as the coolest cat picture of the week. So every week at my Twitter, I will select uh, one or more uh, cat photos that really impressed me. And, you know, cats aren't easy to photograph. I've been trying to photograph my cats for uh, my entire adult life, and it's not easy. So that was a great shot, and congratulations to the photographer of Tango. Oh, one other person I wanted to credit before I forget, because the exchange I'm having with people uh, at, by direct message on Twitter has been extremely interesting and helpful as well as we exchange information. I mean, I'm not sitting on some high horse here and saying, come to me for everything, I know it all. No, absolutely not. I mean, nobody can follow everything that's going on. And an example is one of my Twitter friends, Ruth of Los Angeles, uh, had tipped me, had tipped to her. She tipped me to uh, the second story that I wrote about, which I'll comment on a moment, about... um, uh, this ridiculous article in Vanity Fair that I, I then wrote about, and she and I were both researching it simultaneously and direct messaging on Twitter. So that was an example how one of my Twitter friends, and it's not the only example, really helped to give me some information that I could actually use in a forthcoming article. So kudos to Ruth of Los Angeles. But briefly to get back to the article, the first article that landed at American Thinker and also at HagmanReport.com and and the latter is the version I prefer because I added a 700 word intro to it in which I reviewed how I I began or or actually resumed writing and analyzing or analyzing writing about the media one year ago at this point and uh, so anybody who's interested in that I mean I think it has some interesting information in there which touches on really what what is the big picture we're talking about. We're not simply talking about the news media and how we get our information. We are talking about the survival of President Donald Trump because if these powers that be in the shadow government, deep state, permanent bureaucracy, Democrat socialist, whatever label you want to put on them, if these people who are still controlling uh, not only much of the government operation, notwithstanding that we have President Trump in the Oval Office, but they're also controlling about 95% of the narrative that we have access to in anything approaching the mainstream media, print, online, and electronic. Uh, if, if they are allowed to take down the last and only uh, fair and balanced at all medium, that is Fox News, then we are really in deep water. So this is one reason to be concerned about it. Do you think that could happen, Peter? I mean, I know. Absolutely. No, I, I, in fact, as I said, I think, you know, to to kind of break uh, a story that I will be doing in, I hope, the near future, or to give a preview of it, uh, I mean, I'm not predicting the future, but I would not be surprised, and I'm gearing up for the a significant change in 
Fox News and how it's presented. We know that the Fox News News Department harbors outright enemies of the evening primetime opinion programming. And that's where the wealth of it lies as far as we are concerned. I mean, Doug, you and I, Joe, we have spent countless hours, as you guys have done on your own shows in addition to this program, crediting Sean Hannity and his cadre of uh, investigative journalists who over the past year since last March 7th have continued to unravel the layers of this rotting onion of the deep state and the conspiracy to suppress candidate Donald Trump and then to negate and ruin the presidency of Donald Trump. And Hannity and his allies, uh, Sarah Carter, John Solomon, Greg Jarrett, uh, Dan Bongiorno, Bongino, and many others have carried that ball for the last year. And now, if we look at what even the mainstream media or the kind of mainstream conservative media is running, look at this. In the last 24 hours, these were my three favorite articles. Uh, in uh, American Greatness, uh, Victor Davis Hansen, threat to rule of law is coming from the sanctimonious elite. Uh, Michael Mukasey, an attorney general under George W. Bush, writing in USA Today. I mean, this guy was thought of as a rhino. But look at what he wrote, an article titled, It's Time to End the Robert Mueller's Investigation. I've seen him on Fox News. He's basically in sync with the evening opinion programming and what he is saying. And the third article by Charles Hurt, who was never a real pro-Trump writer or reporter, he wrote my favorite article of the last several days titled, What Obama Administration Did is Far Worse Than Watergate. So we see that this kind of analysis that was pioneered by Sean Hannity and virtually no one else in the highly visible media and his associates starting on March 7th of last year has now penetrated into elements of the mainstream media and uh, more of the conservative, moderate, centrist right media. And we'll see where this goes because one of the conclusions I've come to in recent days as I reflect on all of this madness, all this crazy news and our frustration at when are we going to see something really pan out in, in all of these crimes that have been well documented by investigative journalists, Judicial Watch, the House uh, Intelligence Committee, etc. Uh, when is this going to make it to legal action? Because until it does, nothing is going to change. When we look at the two impeachments of our lifetimes, or many of us, that is Richard Nixon, 1972 to 74, and uh, Bill Clinton, 1998 and 99, those only became serious uh, impeachments when uh, the legal system was involved, when they were get when those two presidents were getting nailed in the legal system. Now, the irony here is that the Mueller special investigation, the special counsel, and, and the media jackals that are, have been pursuing President Trump before he was even inaugurated, they would have us believe that they are preparing a case of impeachment against President Trump, when actually the reverse should be true. The evidence to this point shows uh, overwhelmingly that if anybody should be called to legal 
criminal account, impeachment if still possible, if they still hold office, it's the Democrats, the Obama regime, which started a conspiracy at the highest levels of the Department of Justice, the FBI, and any other agency that they could manipulate to uh, adversely affect one of the two leading candidates in the 2016 election, Donald J. Trump. That's where the crime is, obviously, and that's where all of these reporters who've been doing uh, the good work in the past year have documented. And now it's breaking out further into the open, but with the absolute uh, Pravda-like control, this this neo-fascist control of the mainstream media, which just completely ignores the truth and the real stories in favor of Stormy Daniels or her ridiculous lawyer. I mean, unbelievable focus on nonsense, and yet that is what they're reporting. They're not reporting these other stories, so it's it's invisible. The truth is invisible to a vast majority of the American people, and that is why, that's a large reason why President Donald Trump, despite all that he has achieved, despite the economy obviously having been largely turned around in the last uh, year and five months, is still in the low 40s in terms of public approval, if you believe those polls. And I think they probably are pretty close to accurate because all the news about him is negative. So what are people to believe? They're going to believe he's some kind of you know, neo-fascist uh, criminal who's going to be impeached or kicked out of office or or lose his mind or go crazy. I mean, this is the absolute insane narrative we get 24-7 from 95% of the mainstream media. And so, again, until this can get into a court of law and to hold this laundry list of people who we know uh, or we suspect uh should be called to account for their actions in the last several of years, you know, Brennan and the rest, then uh, we're really not going to get anywhere, in my opinion. I agree, Peter, and it's you know, just like you, I feel the frustration. Uh, as my dad says, you know, you can't uh, overnight expect the, the justice to, to roll down. you got to investigate. you got to collect the evidence and, and the proof. But, you know, we see each day that goes by, we see more and more evidence Joe, against I, I agree. deep state criminal conspiracy. And then people like Strauch are still in positions of power. People like Rosenstein are still in positions of power. And now you have the audacity of people like James Brennan and others are attacking President Trump, saying that his personal use of the DOJ to investigate the Obama spying into his campaign is a threat to the democracy, our democracy, not the actual criminal conspiracy uh, weaponizing the law enforcement agencies in the top levels of the U.S. against a candidate, then sitting president, but it's President Trump's, uh, you know, wanting to dig into it that is the threat to the democracy. It's absolutely mind-boggling how these people have and, not been dragged off Capitol Hill in handcuffs and a noose around their neck is beyond me. And and hold that thought, Peter. Hold on, because Diana West writes in her book when McCarthy had the hearings. It was the up uproar over the hearings, not the communist infiltration. The same thing that Joe said, and the mm -hmm. same thing you're saying. It's the same play. It's just a different act right now. Yeah, and uh, they're spinning it to now say that this is, you know, Trump's turning into a tyrant going after his political opponents. By the way, following Diana West was a true honor, and uh, I, I couldn't imagine a better lead-in, and, and she's a really hard act to follow, but you know, gold-plated analysis. Well, we, we knew you could pull it off. That's why we set it up that way, so. 
And you know, uh, I, I mean, I like to. She she has the territory covered for the last century. I like to think I picked up on it in the late '60s, early '70s, largely because I was on the ground at that point, able to cover the Nixon impeachment to an extent. I had a Metropolitan Police, D.C. Police press pass, which allowed me entry into congressional hearings and uh, into the White House if I set it up in advance. And uh, oh, here's an interesting... Yeah, I, I thought, just so people know, I mean, Peter Barry Chaka, he, he was out having lunch with Judge Sirica. Okay. Um, how's that? No, I, I, no I, I, was, I never actually went to Sirica's court, but I did go to the Sam Irvin hearings, and I attended the uh, House Judiciary uh, hearings under uh, Representative Peter Rudino, which voted articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon. So, and, and you know, I saw John Dean testify at the Irvin hearings, and some of the other people. It, it, it was really memorable, and you know, you picked up a lot just by being there and soaking it up. And of course, I was living in D.C. then, so every morning we'd get up and read the Washington Post. It was delivered and would advance the story every day, but I, I had this thought, this anecdote I wanted to share because I think it, it's it's relevant and, and touches on my experience of having been on the ground during that time. Uh, so the Watergate break-in, which was a third-rate burglary, uh, and the, the early press coverage confirmed that, that occurred on Saturday night, Sunday morning, June 17th, 18th, 1972. And I believe it was that Sunday morning that the Washington Post did a very brief like police report on it that was buried in the paper. And it was the next day, Monday, that the New York Times, the wire services, picked it up, but still as a tiny story buried in the middle of newspapers. Now, on that Monday, June 19th, 1972, I was in New York City covering the New York presidential primary, which was to occur the next day, Tuesday, June 20th. That was a Democrat primary, and it was still being fought out by Senator George McGovern, who was in the lead for the nomination, and Hubert Humphrey, who at that point was struggling, because Humphrey had lost the California primary two weeks earlier. This was the last primary. So on that Monday morning, uh, Senator McGovern held a formal press conference in a ballroom of his hotel, the Commodore Hotel in Manhattan, which later became the Grand Hyatt when Donald Trump bought it within the next decade. But he held this press conference and all the press was there. And he was getting a lot of coverage because it was presumed that he would be the Democratic Party nominee for president. And I'd been covering the New York primary for two weeks there. It was easy and convenient for me to go up there from D.C., stay with a friend, cover, go around on the press buses covering these candidates. So um, this press conference occurs. All the cameras were there, you know, 20, 25 cameras. The network's not covering it live, but for later uh, coverage, all the print media. There's several hundred journalists there. And uh, so I'm sitting there, you know, I, 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 if I asked a question, I wouldn't raise my hand to be the first because I was a lowly student journalist and I knew my place. But five or six questions were asked by the poobahs of the media, and some of them well-known at that point, you know, household names. And nobody asked about the Watergate break-in. So little old me, I was already following the Watergate break-in. I thought, hey, this is really interesting, isn't it? So I stood up. I was recognized by Senator McGovern. He knew me by name at that point because I've been covering up a lot. He recognized me, and I asked him what he thought of the reports of this break-in, this failed break-in at Democrat Party headquarters. And he gave a, a very interesting, articulate response looking me right in the eye, 
It was the only question at that entire press conference about Watergate, but on the network newscast that night, all three of them, CBS, NBC, ABC, when the coverage of the New York primary came around, they showed Senator McGovern's reply to me. They didn't show my question, but they showed his answer. So that was one little footnote that I always remembered. And actually, that his answer popped up in a CNN documentary about five years ago when they did another Watergate documentary. And uh, lo and behold, I was watching it, and there was his reply in that program, his reply to me at that press conference. But that shows how the mainstream media at that point, uh, I think justifiably, considered it a third-rate break-in at the Watergate and until evidence began to be amassed at the hands of the liberal left Washington Post, the editor of whom Ben Bradley was an intimate of JFK and the Democrats, so he had a special axe to grind against Richard Nixon, and he uh, gave his reporters their carte blanche to dig into the Watergate story, and eventually they nailed Nixon because Nixon uh, was hoisted by his own petard when the secret tapes were revealed and he was heard to be basically obstructing justice. But the original break-in was third-rate. Nixon didn't know about it in advance. He didn't approve it. And it was just business as usual, actually. The Democrats did stuff like that all the time. But until it got into, uh, oops, until it got into legal political area, it, uh, you know, it didn't go anywhere, but it took a long time to build. But you contrast that with now. Even before President Trump, Donald Trump, was inaugurated, there was already talk of alleged collusion between his campaign and Russia. I mean, most of us never even focused on the word collusion until late 2016. I mean, was that a, a commonly heard used word? I don't think so. Now it's like every other word is collusion, collusion, collusion. And, you know, I guess guilty as charged because that word has been uttered, you know, thousands, of, if not more times by now. But it's completely reversed. The media had convicted President Trump before any investigation had even started or any evidence. And now after more than a year of digging on the part of the media and these various investigations, it, it is a big nothing burger, which is why they are going in other directions. Well, Peter, you're right. It's unbelievable that you know, they, they, first they try to say that Trump Russia collusion is bigger than Watergate. Then when it comes up, there's no collusion. Not only that there's no collusion, but the, uh, Obama administration from the top down and, and basically the head of every agency under Obama worked in a criminal conspiracy to try to entrap and, and set up President Trump in order to impeach him and bring him down criminally. But now that that's all come out, and anybody says that's worse than Watergate, the mainstream media ignores it. Last week we saw CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, and the whole lot of them, not one mention of a spy in the Trump campaign, not one mention of any of this stuff. But yes, this is the biggest political scandal in modern American history, and not only that, but the mainstream well, media is in on it. Yeah, which is why I was thrilled to see Charles Hurt with his article uh, yesterday or today, which I mentioned earlier, uh, claiming this is bigger than Watergate. That means the scandal on the part of President Hussein Obama and his uh, cohorts in conspiring to uh, debase and, and, and ruin the free election of 2016. So that, that's where the real bigger than Watergate scandal lies. Right. Let me just comment briefly on the, the second article, which I uploaded uh, most of today to HagmanReport.com. 
And this one also caused a lot of flack on the part of uh, my unnamed sources. It, it's really something when you you think you're quoting your sources or, or not even quoting them, but but referencing them more or less exactly, and then you get an irate email from one or more of them after the article goes online with demands to change it or else. So some minor changes were made, but the article is titled The Truth About the Muslim Prayer Rugs at Fox News' D.C. Headquarters. Now, this there's layers of, of interest in this rather simple story. The genesis of it is on uh, Saturday evening, I think it was, um, Gabriel Sherman who I have a picture of in my article there. Uh, he writes for uh, New York Magazine and now Vanity Fair. You know, this guy is a hotshot, elitist uh, New York City writer who is dedicated to taking down President Trump and Fox News. He wrote a very critical biography of Fox News as Roger Ailes in 2014. So on Saturday, he wrote uh, a very short and... Uh, in my opinion, fake news article claiming that his sources revealed that at Fox News headquarters in Washington, D.C., the recently vacated office of Oliver North, that is former Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who's worked for Fox News for almost two decades but resigned recently when he became the head of the NRA on May 7th. So he vacated his office, and according to Sherman and his unnamed sources, North's office has been turned into a meditation, a, a Muslim meditation room with Muslim prayer rugs. Now, Sherman actually wrote approvingly of this because he thinks it's great, it's politically correct, and it, it's serving as a comeuppance to the likes of the memory of the late Roger Ailes and any conservatives who might be left at Fox News. So, of course, this this article immediately piqued my interest, not only because of what Sherman reported, and it was picked up almost immediately by Esquire, another far-left publication, elitist, snobby, and then that was picked up by Yahoo News, you know, another uh, left-of-center but big news source, and then it was picked up by four conservative publications, The Daily Caller, Breitbart, WorldNet Daily, and a lesser-known one called Conservative Tribune by W.J. Now, the amazing thing there is that these four articles, all of them, in reputable conservative publications, I mean, Breitbart, you know, we often turn to Breitbart or have turned to Breitbart News for probing stories that support the conservative end of things, Right. Well, all four of these stories basically regurgitated Gabriel Sherman's questionable, I would say, fake news piece, including with their sensational headlines. So that, to me, was was really uh, the meat of the story, how you have to kind of expect this fakery from somebody like, uh, well, somebody writing for uh, Vanity Fair or Esquire, but what's going on with WorldNet Daily, Breitbart, et cetera, et cetera? And by the way, by before I began to analyze their coverage, I tapped my own sources to confirm that Gabriel Sherman's story 
uh, which was reflected by all of these others, all uh, seven in total, including his, were grossly inaccurate. And it's not really a Muslim or a prayer room for Muslims with prayer rugs. It, it does have a name of like maybe meditation room, but women who are breastfeeding can use it or who are collecting their milk if they have a newborn baby at home. You know, it's a multi-purpose room. And that, that didn't rub me the wrong way so much, especially when my sources dug in their heels and said, no, this is not uh, a, a room for Muslim prayer. So I, I quoted or referenced my sources but then ask the question, what's going on with these conservative publications? And actually, this leads back to a door I opened seven weeks ago tonight. I believe that was April 1st or thereabouts when, um, might have the date slightly wrong, but it was the Monday when Ben Shapiro, who is self-anointed to become the next uh, William F. Buckley, he hopes, and the king of all conservative media, went from doing a podcast on the internet to doing a high-profile talk radio show on, among others, the number one talk radio station in the country, WABC AM 770 in New York City. And uh, in, in going into Ben Shapiro's background, I found out that uh, his high-trafficked, well-funded website, Daily Wire, which is largely conservative, but more often than not, never Trump, as is Shapiro himself, and who's also, by the way, never Alex Jones now, too. He came out a week or so ago and uh, cautioned Kanye West against going on Alex Jones' show, so uh, that rubbed me the wrong way. But anyway, Shapiro... Social media uh, police. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's showing his true colors, which I predicted back there seven weeks ago. But, you know, I discovered that He's being funded to a greater, if not a total extent, by uh, self-made billionaires, the Wilkes brothers in a small town in Texas who made billions of dollars in the last decade uh, through a fracking uh, business. And it, it wasn't that I was commenting on that or on them or what they're doing with their money. That wasn't my concern. My concern is that Shapiro – oh, and by the way, these brothers are so far right – that they are never Trumpers and they like uh, Senator Cruz and they funded his PAC to the tune of supposedly or reportedly $15 million and they set up a media empire for their boy Ben Shapiro who then starts echoing their tune without admitting that, uh, you know, without showing any kind of transparency. So, and, and then it's not only Shapiro and his Daily Wire that has this dirty little secret. We know that Breitbart is funded or has been largely funded in recent years by the Mercer family. But when you start to probe into many of the other conservative so-called websites, they also have very wealthy funders behind them, in some cases uh, transparently known, in most cases not. Then you have the exceptions like uh, American Thinker, and it's not exclusively a plug for American Thinker because there are other sites like that which don't have uh, a lot of money behind them, and therefore they actually are more open to a variation of opinion. An, an example being on uh, Sunday, early Sunday morning after the royal wedding, American Thinker ran two prominent bog, bog, blog articles, one by Bonica Showalter, which actually was focused on how Barack Hussein Obama, she concluded, did not give a wedding gift to the royal couple, whereas President Trump did. 
showing an element of class there. Who's got the class, right? But she was kind of, you know, up on the wedding. And uh, Rick Moran, who also works for and writes for American Thinker, wrote a scathing article about this royal wedding and, you know, we should put this kind of thing behind us. This is why we fought the revolution, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, that's interesting. The American Thinker is really an open forum and could actually have very competing viewpoints on the same day. Uh, and, you know, maybe because the publication isn't being funded by some sugar daddy, although there is for almost all these publications now the tyranny of the click-through and the page views. And uh, I've experienced this myself in uh, in the last 12 months, but more or less recently, where I've uh, published an article. In fact, the Ben Shapiro one is, is a prime example, which ran an American thinker. I intended for that to be a part one of two in which I would get into this whole mess, I would call it, of the covert funding of a lot of center-right or right-wing websites that we rely on and we don't really know who's behind them. I thought that was an interesting uh, subject to get into. But my first article on Shapiro sank like a rock, and it's hard to sell a follow-up to an editor and publisher if your first one is considered a bomb. You know, that's just the way it is. That's the law of the business now. And I, I really don't like it. I have a lot of problems with it. I'm critiquing it, but I understand it because that you know you're either being funded by somebody who's rich, or you've got to chase the advertisers, and that means Hagman uh, Report and page views. I just want to uh, just everyone listening. Hagman Report is funded by the the listeners, the viewers, the people who we are self-supported. We don't buy into this. Uh, we're funded by nobody, okay, except right. the people who listen. And, 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 and so thank you. And, and Peter. And I enthusiastically endorse that because that's why, since we connected yeah. last June, we're coming up on the first anniversary, I have posted, I think, over 100 articles now at yeah. hagreport.com. And in fact. 120. 120. Yeah, I, I usually, in fact, I think I almost always, I always prefer the version that I put up at the Hagman Report because it, it'll go up at its soonest, a few hours after American Thinker. You know, it's a different thing. When your article goes online, you get a different view of it and you say, gee, I could have maybe edited that there, added something here, and plus you got the readers crowing about it. You know, some of them have good sound complaints or criticism. So I, I redo it before I put it up at Hagman Report in most cases. And I, I actually prefer the versions there. So they're all there. The archive is there. And that does, uh, that does position HagmanReport.com, uh, as a leading voice in the conservative, traditional, uh, media political universe that is a free and open forum that's, uh, not influenced by anybody except what the writer wants to say and share with the audience. That's right, Peter, and thank you so much for the great That's work right. that you do and the, the great reports that you put together. We do appreciate reading them, and I know our listeners do as well, as as well as they uh, appreciate your appearing each and every Monday on the Hagman Report. You and kick butt, man. If you want Peter's segmented videos on our YouTube channel, Hagman Report, go to uh, Between the Lines with Peter Chalka. All the appearances are segmented there. We are absolutely out of time. Peter, thank you so much for joining us and taking us out tonight. And Diana West, thank you for joining us as well. It's fantastic. Thank you, guys. God bless. See you next week. All right, man. All right, Peter. That will do it for us tonight. we got a great show lined up for you tomorrow night. Captain Roy, Josh Tolley, and I'm leaving someone out there. 
Bill Salas. Thanks, John. All right. Have a great hey, day. Hey, 9 o'clock in the morning for Hagman Report and 2 to 3 for Joe and John.